Today's episode is brought to you by Megan Fernandez's I Do Everything I'm Told, a collection of poems that explores disobedience and worship, longing and possessiveness, and nights of wandering cities. Says Adrian Matika, the collection is at its center a book of love poems, like all the best poetry collections are. The pretense of love, the past tense of love, and what we do when the little galaxies we build with others start to come apart. Fernandez navigates these spaces with the kind of slick wit and care that love poems require. Awareness, eros, and utter abandon. I do everything I'm told is out on June 20th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. During the last episode, the live recording of the public event at Powell's Bookstore, where I was in conversation with Katie Holton about her book, The Language of Trees, I commented on how sometimes uncanny things happen with regards to the order the episodes come out. That they come out in a way where you might think I've masterminded them this way. And given that I didn't, it can feel sometimes like an invisible hand has brought them into conversation. I think of the four-episode stretch of Sharif Shanahan, Monica Yoon, Googie Watiango, and Christina Sharp, where each in their own way engaged with blackness and anti-blackness and in Africa and the Americas. And last episode, I was foolish enough to announce what seemed like another stretch of four episodes to announce this while they were still unfolding, a quartet of ecological consciousness episodes, starting with Melanie Rayton, Richard Powers, Katie Holton, and presumably today's episode. This episode today with Johanna Hedva talks about a lot of things, fate, doom, curses, witches, death metal, Korean waterfall singing, yeast infections, drag, dogs that can't roll over, marks, astrology, sex battles, phone sex, leather, body horror, mixed race identity, disability, debt, and perhaps most notably, making art and creating community, meaning, and solidarity in late-stage capitalism. So if it isn't obvious from this list, this isn't the fourth episode in a magical sequence, but rather an episode that indeed engages with magic, that of performance and identity, both on the page and in one's life. Johanna Hedva has also likely contributed the most unique thing to ever grace the bonus audio archive. Most of the archive is readings, often really dynamic readings, or craft talks, or long-form conversations with translators. And occasionally, more rarely, someone does something different, like playing music. But Hedva created something specifically for us. After we talked for the show, they were on book tour, on both coasts, and recorded themselves moaning, singing, grunting, screaming, breathing, city to city. And they wrote text while they were on tour, which they also recorded. Hedva sent these various voicings and voices 
to Henry Glover in L.A., along with the universe's own voices, recordings of the sonifications of a black hole or of the helix nebula, raw audio of the sun, a field recording of the aurora borealis, and asked Glover to mix and master all this material into a track called The Saddest Thing of All is When a Lone Astronaut Falls in Her Suit, Who is There to Help Her Up? In their intro to this contribution, Hedva describes the vibe and imagined scenario for this astronaut that they wanted Henry to aim for, but I'll save that for you to discover because it's pretty priceless. But if you subscribe to the bonus audio, don't miss this one because it was dreamed up from the beginning, especially for us. The bonus audio is only one possible benefit of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter gets the resource-rich email corresponding to each episode. Each listener supporter can join our collective brainstorm of who to invite onto the show. And then there are a ton of other things to possibly choose from, from the bonus audio archive to the Tin House Early Readership Program, where you receive 12 books over the course of a year, months before they are available to the general public. And this only scratches the surface of things to consider. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with Johanna Hedva. Stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition, was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning, and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Korean-American writer, musician, performance artist, and astrologer, Johanna Hedva. Hedva was raised by a family of witches in L.A., pursued a B.A. in design at UCLA, and both an MFA in art and an MA in Aesthetics and Politics at the California Institute of the Arts. And they now split their time between Los Angeles and Berlin. As a musician, their latest album, Black Moon Lilith, in Pisces in the Fourth House, is described as hag blues, cave music, mystical doom, intimate metal, and succubus folk. Music informed by the likes of Diamanda Galas, Jeff Buckley, K.G. Haino, and the Korean tradition of pansori singing, which involves training one's voice by singing at waterfalls at great volume. 
in Hyperallergic's review of their performance at the I Want to Be With You Everywhere Festival, a three-day festival of, for, and by disabled artists and writers. They say Hedva leaves the audience, quote, in the collective discomfort of loud sound and powerful vibration. Their music, an alchemical transmutation of chronic pain, trauma, and death that had more than one audience member nodding along in recognition. Lara Mimosa Montes says of Hedva's earlier EP, The Sun and the Moon, I was reminded of Greg Araki's Teenage Apocalypse trilogy, disaffected, drug-induced epiphanies abound. I listened again and thought of Miss Kitten, industrial proto-feminist ennui, songs against capital, graffiti anthems from the bedroom. Two tracks from The Sun and the Moon were played at the Museum of Contemporary Art on the Moon. Hedva's performances and exhibitions include writing and directing a series of plays and performances called The Greek Cycle, that adapted ancient Greek texts to include feminist and queer concerns in contemporary discourse, and contributing video and works on paper, including the astrological birth charts of Simon Weil and Robin Fink, the guitarists for Nine Inch Nails, to the season of Cartesian Weeping Exhibition, as well as work shown at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London, Performance Space New York, and their first solo exhibition, God is an Asphyxiating Black Sauce, in Berlin in 2020. Joanna Hedva's writing has appeared widely, including at Triple Canopy, Freeze, and The White Review. And they first came to a wider audience when they transformed a lecture they gave in 2015, titled, My Body is a Prison of Pain, So I Want to Leave It Like a Mystic, But I Also Love It, and I want it to matter politically. Into their touchstone essay, Sick Woman Theory, a widely influential and translated essay that Lauren Fournier describes as articulating an ethos of agency for those living with chronic illness. Art Slant Magazine adds, in their Sick Woman Theory, writer and performer Johanna Hedva suggests that the dominant discourse on political action drawing largely as it does from Hannah Arendt's faith in the political effect of bodies in the street, is too narrow a definition of how we engage the political. Arendt's conception suggests that only bodies that are able to enter the street are acting politically. It privileges those for whom this is a possibility and reduces other actions to the non-political Hedva asks us to consider the politics of intimacy, of interdependence, of bodies that need, that engage in relationships, and in so doing, reshape the social, political fabrics around them. Johanna Hedva's first novel, On Hell, a book Hedva describes as their attempt at a 21st century version of Icarus from a crip perspective, Anne Boyer describes by saying, It's fucking brilliant. I'm in love. If there have to be novels, On Hell is what they should do. Brandon Shimoda adds, At some point while reading On Hell, I had the sensation that my heart had pushed through my chest, my brain had pushed through my skull, and my guts had pushed through my abdomen. 
and that I was, in solidarity with Hedva's writing, wearing my insides on the outside of my body. Only writing this nakedly vulnerable could be this intensely embodied, and only writing this intensely embodied could be this insurrectionary. Their follow-up, released at the height of the pandemic, Minerva, The Miscarriage of the Brain, documents a decade of their work in the form of essays, poems, and performances. A book Banu Kapil calls A Process of Alchemical, Pelvic, Infinite, Submaternal, and Ceramic Change. Johanna Hedva joins us today to talk about their latest, a novel called Your Love is Not Good, from the press and other stories. Harry Dodge calls Your Love is Not Good a major achievement, containing, quote, revelations both vibrating and appalling about artists and practice and about contemporary art worlds. An instant classic, must-read, important addition to the woefully scanty genre of books by artists about art life. And Kirkus in its starred review says about the book's artist protagonist, conflicted over the opposing impulses of her desire for recognition and solidarity, economic success and artistic authenticity, excellence and anonymity, the narrator spends a long, dark night of the soul spiraling around the splendor of self-destruction like a moth to a singular flame. Impassioned, wry, compassionate, and hell-raising, this novel illuminates its frangible but resilient world the way a painter uses color on canvas to illuminate the focal point of their vision, building layer after layer of meaning until the image appears as if it has always been there for us to see, a resplendent and fearless book. Welcome to Between the Covers, Johanna Hedva. Hi, David Naiman. Thank you. Uh, it feels so weird to hear you say all of that, but I'm trying to just appreciate hearing your voice. Yeah. Talking to me. Well, we've been talking for, I think, years now about you coming on the show and us having a conversation. So this is exciting. So my first question is not an astrology question or not only or, <laughs> or not only or mainly an astrology question. But it feels like prior to this book, the stars were not on your side. When, <laughs> <laughs> when you were in conversation with Ooh. Asher Hartman for your last book, Minerva, several years ago now, you talked about that book's improbably cursed publication history, that it was accepted for publication twice, but each time where the presses failed before it was published. Even though that book was ultimately published, it came out in the early days of the pandemic. Many of the performance spaces documented within the book no longer existed. And of course, being in the world with a performance text was nearly impossible due to COVID. And you talked with Asher about how for the longest time, with all these failed acceptances, which is a weird phrase, failed acceptances, and your publication into the heart of a cultural lockdown, that you questioned what the book was. And it, it really only came together when you accepted it as a shape-shifting sort of thing, something capacious enough to hold 
essay, poetry, and performance. And where the main character wasn't really a, a person, the through line was the city and the decade portrayed of the city. But it wasn't just the publication history that seemed cursed. The era of your life portrayed in that book also did. You, you say in Minerva, my decade began with a divorce from an abusive husband, a miscarriage caused by inherited disease, an involuntary hospitalization, and ended with the death of my mother. And one of the reasons you kept persevering around wanting to publish Minerva by your own account was because you wanted to kill this era of your life. But since then, it seems like, from the outside at least, that things have shifted. The novel we are talking about today is with not only a great press, but one that doesn't seem to be going anywhere but up. Uh, you also have a book of essays coming out next year called How to Tell When We Will Die, Essays on Sickness, Fate, and Doom. So thinking of fate and thinking of doom, does it feel like something has shifted in your favor, whether due to perseverance or due to luck, or perhaps because your book is coming out near the new moon in Taurus, and, <laughs> and us Tauruses are simply due for something new and good? Uh, I mean, well, girl, I'm cursed and doomed forever, so I feel like... The answer is a bit more complicated than like a yes or no, although I love that you're setting me up to like feel like, yeah, maybe everything's great now. I mean, a couple of things come to mind. One is that according to this very janky Chinese astrology website, the, like the best year of my entire life is next year. And then it just fucking tanks after that. <laughs> it just like goes up and then down. <laughs> So I, <laughs> so I had checked. <laughs> so we're in a good I, bubble. Yeah, like I knew that a couple of years ago. I was like, oh, 2024, like, okay, that's the peak. So I better get ready. So with the book coming out now, Your Love is Not Good, like I astrologized that publication date to the inch of its life. And I was just very lucky that the press and other stories would indulge me even that little bit where I could pick the date. Because my birthday was just like two weeks ago. Not even, because I'm a Taurus, yeah, like you. And so I knew that starting this year, you know, I had this peak that I'm only going to get once. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could say that part of why I bring this up is because our main character in your new book is trying to, quote unquote, make it as an artist, too. But really, I bring it up to provide some history against which I'd like to ask you about the story of how this novel came into being before we talk about the protagonist within the book. You've said your primary methodology in your art making is what you call hermeneutical mischief, which involves morphing across forms and genres. And Minerva, your last book, is a perfect example of this. But you could probably say On Hell, your first book, is an example in a different way, a novel that you've called a tirade manifesto and that others have called a paranoid, profane rant of a novel. Both descriptions speaking to a way that I think voice to great effect sort of overpowers and even knocks down many of the other formal scaffoldings we might expect in a book. Perhaps maybe even in the way you're 
Korean waterfall singing is meant to sort of shred the vocal cords that make the sound in the first place. But you said when talking to Asher years ago now that you had been working on this book for six years then and that you wanted it to be more of a novel than what you'd written before. And you couldn't count how many times you had Googled what is a plot. And recently you said to me by email that the joke is you've spent nine years now Googling what is a plot and you still don't know what it is. So I have a multi-headed question for you. First, why do you want to write a novel that's more like a novel than before? And is your attraction to doing so antagonistic? Like, for example, I think of Banu Kapil being haunted by this quote-unquote real novel and then trying to write one, but then frustrated burying it in the backyard in the snow over the winter and then unearthing it in the spring and making this one of her many amazing hybrid uncategorizable works from its remains that she pulls out of the earth. Or on the other hand, were you attracted to it for other reasons, whether practical reasons or aesthetic reasons? The second part of this question is really a rephrasing of the first part. What is your relationship to the form, to novels as a form? What is your notion of them coming into this project? And an extension of that is, um, you've said that Anne Carson is squatting over your last book. And I wondered if there were certain novelists that were squatting over this book. You know, this antagonistic relationship to the form of the novel is certainly the big thing that was propelling me, for sure. Because I don't really know what a novel is. And, you know, I didn't study writing. I've never taken a writing class. Um, I don't really, like, hang out in the literary world. And I went to a kind of conceptual, heady art school, you know, where you just lay around on the carpet eating a burrito and you crit one work for three hours and you're not <laughs> allowed to ask the artist any questions. You just have to talk about it, what you see and feel yeah. and think in, with whatever is in front of you. And so one of the things that's so cool about that actually is that it means that anything is up for grabs to make meaning. Whereas like, say if you go to the theater you don't question like the seat that you're sitting in or the stage or where the lighting is or where the usher is standing. And same with a book. You get a book. It has a front cover and a back cover. It has this kind of, if it's a paperback, a sort of cheapish paper, sans serif, serif font are really the only options, black type, you know. Um, but there's something in art that has always been... Um, I guess the most satisfying to me in the sense that like all of those things can be up for grabs to be part of the work. So that's like where I'm coming from is like a kind of like a freaky, like, like, like one of the things also that I would say about being kind of a freaky outsider is like the more confused I am when I'm looking at something like some form of art, a movie, a book, whatever it is, the more confused I am, the, the more I like it, you know, when I'm like, what the fuck is going on with this? Like, it's really, it's a lot more exciting to me than if I'm like, oh, okay, there's that, there's this reference, this is what they're trying to do. I also feel this way about people. Like, I'm, I'm definitely very attracted, like the, like the attractive thing that gets woken up in me happens when I'm like, what is that? You know, like, so I think like that as a 
kind of context for me coming into trying to write books is maybe important to say and to set as a as a kind of ground or starting place kind of thing which was that I was doing primarily in my 20s performance art I mean I had been in bands all of my um, teenage years so I was very like versed in performing live um, the feeling of being in a room with a bunch of people kind of communally experiencing something I was definitely in the kind of bands where people would leave immediately when we started playing. And I, that was victory for me, you know? Like, I always felt very, like, yes. <laughs> Get the fuck out of here, you know, if you don't like it. And it was very, like, it's like a punk thing, you know? It's like if you can piss somebody off, if you can be revolting or shocking or whatever, scandalous, like, yay, you know? So that's sort of where I like come from in terms of just like a vibe. And then um, in my 20s, I was doing a lot of performance art that also tried to affect this with the audience. So how do we take that and juxtapose that with this attraction to a recognizable form that might even invite people in, right? I think there was just from the beginning of the project, like back in 2014, just sort of like a fuck you, I could do that. I could write a real novel. I could write something that has like characters with psychological interiority who change over time and like plot that has consequence. Yeah, it was like a fuck you. And, and, it, and practically speaking, it was that because I had written two novels, one that hasn't been published and then on hell, which was... And both, like the first one, when I was writing it, I was like, oh, finally, I'm going to get, I'm going to get there. <laughs> and then it was just universally rejected, you know. And it was rejected always with the same kind of note, which was that it was really an art object. It was really designed. There was, I, you know, it was like graphic designed where there was different fonts and papers, depending on the characters who were talking. It started... It was there were two stories that were put together so you could start it on either end and then you reach the middle and this clutch of like red pages at the heart of the book. And everyone who rejected it was like, this is cool, but we don't have the money to print this like and you're nobody, which is a fair, totally fair, you know. So I think like coming from this as a background, weird performance art, punk bands that scared people, you know, like really experimental kind of um jagged textual experiments it felt like the thing that I had not done yet actually was to try to write a quote-unquote real novel to try to write a quote-unquote story that was actually the the weird challenging freaky experiment was mm -hmm. to aim toward a kind of a center and honestly there is something there too about I'm quite interested in what happens in a work to make it more palatable to a mainstream? What keeps it out of a mainstream? Like what would have to happen to make them keep reading it? Also vice versa, like somebody like me who wants to be kind of confused all the time with work, when does something become too on the nose or too prescriptive to make me not interested in it? And then, you know, very, very, very kind of personally practical, um, was when I started it, I wanted to write a book that would heal my relationship with my mother. And my relationship with my mother was very, very fraught and tormented. And there was something 
that felt important to me about writing the kind of book that she could just go into a Barnes and Noble and get. She was disabled. She was very poor. She was an addict. So she would have to like take the disability bus, you know, that only came once a week to drive her into the town that would have a Barnes and Noble, which is like half an hour away. She'd have to spend her little bit of money, you know, on it. So that was the other thing is I wanted to write a book that she could access that wasn't in like a curated art bookstore in LA or New York only, right? Um, And then, yeah, you know, just to take it real deep, real fast, like the heartbreak is that, you know, she died while I was writing it. She never read it. She didn't know about it. So that's the other thing about this is like, I kind of didn't have the luxury either to just keep fucking around in the margins. Yeah. Also in terms of like livelihood or making any kind of living. Um, So there was another concern there of like, well, maybe I should try to aim toward a place that would be a wider visibility and just sort of see how close I can get in that trajectory. And so with that in mind, what are the novels or novelists that hover over this one for you? The squatters. um, Yeah, if there are any. There are, absolutely. The three, the, the holy trinity was Shirley Jackson, Clarice Lispector, and Mary Gateskill. Okay. So when I It's a powerful write, trilogy. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, I was like, well, we got to, you know, we got to pray to the right gods for this <laughs> one. I write in a tiny, tiny room in my apartment in Berlin, and there are like 5,000 books in there, and I can kind of reach them from my desk. And with this novel specifically, I would keep the books of Jackson, Lispector, and Gateskill on the desk. Mm. And one of the things I really like to do, kind of just in any writing, um, and I don't even have to be stuck, I just like to do it sometimes, is I just pull a book off the shelf, open it at random, and then I write a sentence verbatim from that book into my own manuscript, and then I go word by word and change the word to either a synonym or an antonym. I love that. It's just for funsies, you know, it's like I usually end up deleting that sentence from the manuscript, but it's just to get a new syntax or approach happening. And so I would do that often with those three, with this novel. And then there were very specific things that each one of those people, each one of those writers do that I just stole outright. (laughs) Well, one of the things you immediately encounter upon reading the book is that it's composed of many short chapters And they're all titled by the name of a method or a term or a definition from the world of painting, which is the world of our protagonist, followed by a definition for the word. And then after the definition, the chapter itself. My favorite is Isabeline, whose definition is a grayish, yellowish, dingy white named after Isabella Clara Eugenia, the sovereign of the Spanish Netherlands, in the 16th and 17th centuries. The story goes that when her husband went to war, Isabella vowed not to wash her underwear until he returned. She thought the war would be a quick one. And Isabeline is named for the color of her linens when the siege ended three years later. This story was eventually discredited, which learning that made me sad. But but you've talked about how (laughs) one of the many how to write a dramatic story books that you read. One that was mostly about screenwriting was putting forth a three-part structure where each part is built on 
and culminating in a battle where the hero loses in the first two parts and then wins in the last part. And you said you thought it'd be interesting to make the three battles in your book into sex scenes and art openings, both of which call into question the very notion of winning and losing at all. Um, but what I'm most interested in hearing from you as we step toward the story, given your long fraught losing or winning engagement with what a plot is and whether plot was essential to the novel. If you stepped into the elevator with someone who said, well, what is your book about? I'm curious what you would say. And I know you know what to say because you shared with me this wild 43 page document, <laughs> a questionnaire sent to you by your publisher that was supposed to help you think deeply about your book, but also I think to help them to be public with your book. And you give these really amazing long meditations on many things about it. But what would be your first step to some person that you're meeting by chance that is curious that we can use as a frame to step through to, to talk about the story of, of your novel? Yeah, I mean, I do have the elevator pitch, which actually was kind of more the elevator pitch to myself in 2014 than I made when I set out on this, like, plan to write a real novel. I was like, okay, what if we start with a first-person narrator who, on paper, at the DMV, say, would check all the same identity boxes as me? Um, white mother... Korean father, born and raised in LA, poor as dirt, queer as fuck, kink, 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 went to art school, like wanted to be somebody. Um, but then what I wanted to do is anytime this character has to make a choice, I wanted her to do the thing that I ethically disagreed with, or that I politically thought was wrong, or that I didn't do. And there are a lot of reasons that I have for that, but that's sort of what I, what I set out, you know, kind of with the, con that was the concept, that was the prompt. And it was something that at the time, and I still sort of think of, um, is relevant or germane to call an anti-autofiction, hmm. which some, in some way I'm like, is that just fiction? But, you know. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's not a, it's, I don't know if it is actually. Just fiction. I don't know either, but it sort of was a very useful, it was a useful, it was great to start there, to just be like, I would disagree with this, like in the moral dilemma that I'm going to put in front of this character in this chapter, like what do I think is the right thing and what do I think is the wrong thing? And then I would try to write into the wrong thing. The other answer that I would have that's a bit shorter is that I always think that writers put one line in their books that sums up the whole project and it's a little game I like to play with myself of like trying to figure out what it is and so I put one in mine of course and it's um meaning is slippery and yet it keeps slicing into you yeah. I think that's the kind of larger philosophical project of the book well it's interesting that you've set it up to have its major dramatic encounters either to be sexual encounters and what happens both during them and, and as an effect from them and around art openings leading up to them, what happens at the openings. Because I think the major themes of the book 
for me, the intersections of capitalism and art, questions of whiteness in relation to the economy of art making uh, and the philosophy of art making, questions of gender and representation, they really run through both strands. I would say the three-act sex strand and the three-act art opening strand. We see how these forces shape our main character's personal life, her family of origin, her affective way of being in the world, and we see how these forces shape the rules of the world that she's trying to succeed in, in this institutionalized art world. But maybe we could just spend a moment with the why, if you could, if you could lean into this question of you not only wanting a character who would choose the opposite of you, but you want a character to have a lot of your, I, I don't want to say superficial details, but maybe things you would see uh, as like the first descriptors of somebody, white mother, Korean father, both white passing. You're both artists, both split your time between LA and Berlin, as you said, both come from poverty, both have a lot of art school debt. I mean, one other significant way it seems to me that you're different uh, is that you have, from what I can gather, a much more of a DIY or punk aesthetic. Yeah. <laughs> um, far less capital is involved to make it. Far less capital coming your way because of it. She's trying to succeed on the terms of the art world itself, which maybe is because she's made some of these quote unquote wrong choices already before the book is opened. Who knows? But in, she wants to succeed in a big way on its terms with patrons and gallerists, um, where the art openings actually involve great risk and possibility for her quote-unquote career. Um, whereas I imagine the risks and possibilities of your own work are not framed in the, on these terms. So speak a little bit more about why it's important to tether these wrong choices to quote-unquote you versus just some completely other person making the wrong choices. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. Like, I should probably point out, like, the art world that this character exists in is definitely not the art world that I exist in. Like, she exists in the commercial art world. She has a gallery. She sells her work. She goes to art fairs. You know, she exists in that way, like you're saying, like a lot of capital, a lot of kind of professionalization around this thing. And very early on in my dalliances with the art world I was like fuck that like I was even very anti-object being sold for many many years with my work and so part of this is a little bit of speculating into like that juicy place around choice and consequence of like did I make the right choice choices like because I'm poor as hell still I don't make any money with my I mean I've sold like in the last 10 years I think I've sold three drawings you know in in the high three figures you know like it's, it's it's just a very different it's just a very different setting the the art world that I exist in so I think one of the reasons that I was like the why of it has to do with get, going back to this question of what is a novel like what is a novel good at that that it that maybe like other forms aren't as good at and somebody very close to me when I was like kind of early in the early stages of writing told me, um, you know, the main thing about a novel is time. 
it takes a lot of time to read one. Like it takes a lot of time to write one and it takes a lot of time to read one. And that seemed really profound to me. It seemed much more profound than three-part structures about plot and whatever. Because I think what happens with the time that a novel requires um, both to write and to read has to do with this kind of interiority that gets built by the novel, by being in it. Like, And this is true. This is also one of the things I think that's interesting about novels is I think that the interiority is similar to the writer as it is to the reader in a way that there's more distance, I think, with other forms. Say, like, with, a, with, with music, I feel like the interior space that I'm in when I'm writing music versus when I'm performing it live for people and their interiority or whatever is happening while they're receiving it, these are pretty different states. Same with, like, a painting. Somebody works on a painting, a painter paints a painting for however long, and then to view it or receive it as an audience member is very... It's a very different space to see it than it was to make it. But I think with writing, and particularly with writing like long narrative stories where you follow a character for 100, 200, 300 pages, there is this interiority that kind of, it's not, it's not exactly the same as, like the reader isn't having the exact same experience that I am, but it's a bit closer in terms of distance. And I think that that was the interesting thing for me is like, right, like I'm going to get to reach into this interiority of this character and then feel that for a long time. And so what that then does is build a relationship to the consequence in the external world of that interiority in a way that I find really fascinating. Like, I guess this is though, like it's a bit 19th century, like bourgeois of me to say this, but like, I feel like the thing that's cool about a novel is you really get into this distance between the interior intention and then the consequence of that choice and how far those things are, right? That is character, that mm -hmm. is story, is the, the distance between these and how that's navigable on the page, right? So there was something in there about this distance between, I do think everyone can relate to feeling a distance between what they feel in an in interior place and then how this is externalized in the world, how they are perceived, how they are read, whatever. But for me, I think that distance is particularly political, hmm. the interior exterior thing. For example, like one way I can describe that in more concrete terms is like, I'm someone who looks like what I'm not. So I look like a white, cis, abled woman. But what I am is a Korean-American, disabled, genderqueer person. And that is a, that means that wherever I go, you know, in this life and the, the way I look means I don't really feel like I belong anywhere. Because a lot of belongingness for us in political, social terms is predicated on a visual similarity. Like if you look like something, then you're allowed in. And this is not just like genetically. This is also like subculturally. Like are you wearing the mohawk or not? Are we letting you into the punk club or not? That kind of thing. So to me, like that was one of the interesting things that like doing that in fiction felt like I could really reach into the sticky, messy part of how there's this distance between interior and exterior and what it means in terms of a consequence in the world. And 
And, you know, this might sound like a kind of stoner epiphany, like, but it seemed like painting, which has this really, you know, it's very shallow, just in terms of it is literally a surface, 2D surface that then, you know, produces this immeasurable depth. It seemed like painting was just kind of like a supple way to do that. Yeah. So I wanted her to be a painter. I love that. Well, this is one of the ways that I tried to understand the divergence between you and your character that shares your your life CV details in some ways. <laughs> is that I think about the essay you're most well known for, Sick, Sick Woman Theory, which created such an immense amount of attention for you that you even reached out to others for advice on how to manage it. And you were invited to speak at innumerable universities to be on panels. You were approached by agents who wanted you to make this into a book. But it also irked you the way people wanted to view you solely through the lens of this one essay and also this one issue, to speak only to this question of disability when much of your work didn't engage with it at all. As if you were like a band with one hit that people only wanted to hear when you toured. Um, as if sick woman theory was your free bird, perhaps. Yeah, it was my free bird. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, um, I think it was probably more like, like, what's the hit? Like the Smash Mouth hit. It was probably more like that, where I'm like <laughs> playing it at the Sacramento County Fair over yeah. and over. Um, <laughs> so in your essay, Why It's Taking So Long, you said, and I wanted to be published so badly, I thought I would have done anything. The editors in my inbox didn't say any numbers outright, but it was implied that I could sell the Sick Woman Theory book for what would be called a quote-unquote nice deal in the publishing trades. Money like that, security like that, a life like that was something my ancestors and I could only dream of. It was a fairy tale. But when you've been poor your whole life, and are descended from generations marked by it, you become street smart. You know a scam when you see one because the whole world has been scamming you since birth. You've perpetuated plenty of little ones yourself. And by scam, you mean partly the type of book you would have been expected to write, a certain type of memoir, probably one with personal transformation or a redemptive ending, perhaps shaping your life into an arc. Um, and I think about this when I think of you in relation to your character, because whereas you, you forego this temptation, I imagine your protagonist, if they were a writer instead of a painter, they would be all over this opportunity. I yeah, don't know absolutely. that there would be a lot of <laughs> deliberation. Is that, is that right? <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. 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 She's definitely cashing and she wants to cash in. I mean, she wants the legitimation that money and capital and power and fame promise. And that's like an ontological difference that we have, which is that like, and, and to be quite honest, when the sick woman theory thing happened, I mean, for the astrologically fluent listening to this, Jupiter conjuncted the North node exactly on my midheaven the day that sick woman theory was published. So the people listening who know what that means will be like, oh, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> You know, within two weeks, I had an agent, blah, da, 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 da. For the non-astrologically fluent, it was just one of those moments of, like, it was not under my control how big that thing got. And it still stuns me how big it got. 
And I think one of the reasons I'm still stunned is because I was doing all this weird work for years, like 15 years. And, you know, I had like a cute little tiny community of cool other artists doing weird stuff and we were doing it for each other and it was like great. And then suddenly I had this huge, like huge audience that only knew this one thing about me. And to be quite honest, it freaked me out deeply. Like for two years, I had an auto reply on my email <laughs> that just said, I might not reply to you ever. Yeah. <laughs> like for two years, like I couldn't handle it. And I think one of the things about that is that it was suddenly like I was really perceived. That just makes me very, very uncomfortable. I wrote Sick Woman Theory in this storm of needing a voice that was not my own to pull me out of where I was. And that's the voice I wrote in. So it wasn't mine per se. And yet it became this authentic, like, like I think the subject matter kind of signaled or signified to people like, oh, this is like serious and traumatic. And so it means that the voice speaking about it is the authentic real deep one that we have to take very seriously whereas for me sick woman theory was much more trying to reach into the figure of the sick woman why do we need her in society what does she represent to us how do we build this symbol this archetype of the sick woman because the point of sick woman theory for me is that illness like disability and gender are co-constructed that illness feminizes and vice versa. And it doesn't matter if you're sick or not. It doesn't matter if you're a woman or not. That's the point. So the figure of the sick woman for me had to do with like why, like let, I want to reach into why we need her. Because of course we need her because she's the antipodal opposite of the character, the figure that capitalism loves. Yeah. The individual, abled man who can just cut through worlds and history and make his own life how he wants it. He doesn't require care or support. Of course, his entire life is sustained by invisible labor and care provided to him by everything. But we build him as this character that we, we place a lot of value on. And he can really only exist as a protagonist if we have a proper antagonist, and that's the sick woman. So for me, that was what I was trying to get my head around and then the fact that it just blew up and then people were calling me the sick woman and I and you know and then it wasn't lost on me at the time and it's still not that I don't look disabled you know I don't look like gender queer I pass as a femme you know like I'm femme passing I'm abled passing I'm white passing and so it was not lost on me that I was getting invited to speak about these things um, and, you know, disability activists who don't pass were not. And that was difficult for me to like kind of navigate. And that's also why I said no to a lot of stuff as I was like, don't ask me, you should be asking these. like, I could like give you a list, you know, you sort of touched on what I'm going to ask you next, but I'm going to ask it to stay with it longer. I mean, this, this question of how you and your protagonist are connected and then the, also this question of the way you present versus who you are. And then this constructed voice in what other people are reading as your voice in the personal essay, Sick Woman Theory. 
which may not be a personal essay, might just be an, <laughs> an impersonal essay. Well, my um, joke is that it's a stand-up comedy routine. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me ask this and see if we can go a little deeper on this question. Um, you have this very vivid and funny response to a question about identity in the 43-page questionnaire that you shared, <laughs> where you say, I wanted to write about things that make me the most ethically uncomfortable, and I wanted to write a first-person narrator who I disagree with politically. The reason is because I think this is what fiction is for, to get into all that gunk. Often I think of something Deborah Levy said, that, quote, fiction is a wonderful home for the reach of the mind. And as she said it, she reached her hand into the air and closed her fingers into a fist. When I see this image, I think of fisting. In fisting, it's good to wear gloves. If you're going to reach into the mind, the ass of inquiry, the gaping genital of speculation, it's good to have some kind of prophylactic protection. Fiction is the glove. I love this, and this idea that you're fisting your protagonist, your your sock puppet, your, your sock puppet who is both you and your opposite. Um, and as an aside, it reminds me of, of the performance in your last book called The Real Life of Johanna, where you follow someone in their life for 24 hours doing everything that they do, but while retaining your own subjectivity. It feels somehow connected to this character that mm. you've created here. But I wanted to ask you, in the spirit of shadowing someone or of fisting your protagonist about the notion of twins more generally in the book, which is a major through line. And here's just a very small sampling of examples. The narrator saying, I despise my mother, yet I am her duplicate. And saying this as she wears her mother's clothes, her, her mother who is also like her, an artist who when she's a kid, makes the paintings for her own daughter so that her child can take them to school, enter the art contests, and win. Um, and then later, a classmate of hers in third grade who decides she will become her. And it's not as an homage. It's a, it's a really devious form of bullying. So this classmate starts copying her voice, copying her gestures. And then later, as an adult, a a store owner says that she looks just like his wife. And another character says she looks just like her mother. Um, and most notably, the person she refers to as her twin, the white woman who is the subject and object of her art. And there's all these uncanny resonances. Maybe it's another like version of you and the protagonist, but it's between the protagonist and, and their art object, their, um, their twin. But there are many more, including a twinned set of dog anecdotes, the beginning and the end. <laughs> um, so with thinking of twinning or mirroring or shadowing or gloved fisting, what is going on? Johanna Hedva. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I have a kind of like a craft answer that might be interesting, which was that I did try to twin every like kind of major element in the book because it seemed to me to fuck with the causality uh, premise of a novel. 
you know, there's that, I, I can never remember it, but it's like the difference between a plot and a story is like the king died, the queen got sick, the queen died, somebody dies because they're in grief. You know what I'm talking about? It's like Ian Forster or something. It's like the difference between a plot and a story has to do with the causality of the events. That somebody dies because they're so sad that somebody else died or something like that. And that just seems to me to be bullshit. Like, I don't really buy the causality um, thing. And I think it's because of my... um, I think it goes back to this thing that I just prefer things that are confusing. Also, like, interpretively. Like, this is what I mean with hermeneutical mischief being a methodology. So what I wanted to do was twin everything. Twin the characters, twin symbols, twin scenes but slightly invert or shift them in a way that would mean that whatever meaning was consolidated in the first scene or element was then kind of fucked with next. The one thing I kept thinking about was I never wanted my reader to be confused about what was happening, but I did want them to be confused about what it meant. Mm. Somehow Mulholland Drive comes to mind for, for me. yeah. Well, Mulholland Drive was like, that's the other squatter on on this novel. Oh, absolutely. Girl, yes. I mean, (laughs) Mulholland Drive and Three Women. Okay. I was just trying to do that Yeah. in a novel. And with Mulholland Drive specifically, because I adore Sunset Boulevard. Mm. And maybe an interesting biographical note here that is not in the book is that my aunt, who half-raised me um, in L.A., was a Hollywood manager for her career and I always like joke like bitch she was Liza Minnelli's manager in the 80s that's why I'm like this like that's why I'm like this (laughs) (laughs) so I grew up half the time in a house that's like a non-mansion version of Norma Desmond's house you know with old Hollywood glamour like you're not dressed unless you're wearing perfume like gay 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 and so for me Mulholland Drive is so fabulous because it's like David Lynch doing his Sunset Boulevard I also think of like his influence from Maya Duren and so Mm -hmm. like she's much more experimental and far less story centric than Lynch but he's sort of taking some of those elements of her experimental filmmaking I think in that movie and so you get all the shadowing but you also get the story maybe it's a similar trajectory with what how you've moved into a more of a story space my favorite anecdote about Maya Darren is that she like threw a refrigerator at somebody when she was like you know channeling some you know really mystical power (laughs) it's like I remember that very vividly in the documentary but to be to be more like i guess poetic about the question around twins was like i think there was something in the book around the parasitism of desire and particularly with queerness like queer desire like you know when you're younger you know like i came out when i was 14 so it was pretty like i was pretty young and that would have been 1998 and i feel like this is one of the last years one could be kind of gay before the internet helped consolidate your identity like you had to kind of reach into weird places to find something that felt like it was you or like there was a resonance thing that you were searching for that wasn't just available easily and I and my first experiences of it were like 
seeing people and being confused if I wanted to be them or if I wanted to fuck them. Mm. And I think like, you know, this is probably dating me like a lot. It's making me seem real old and unliberated. But, you know, that's deaf, deaf going on. Like I'm old and unliberated about this because there was something about like a gender mirror also. And this is one of the experiences I think with transness in general is like you kind of comport yourself toward an image of the gender you feel you really are, but you don't look like yet. And I think that's what I mean about this like belongingness that's predicated on the visual. It's like, I remember like the the movie that I always say made me gay, like, thank God we had the independent film channel in our cable package because late at night, you know, it was like really, it had just come out. I saw my own private Idaho. And I remember just thinking like, oh, like I am those boys. Like, it's not like I wanted to fuck them. It was like, oh, I am them. Yeah. Like, that's who I am. And so, but I don't look like that. And the world doesn't think I look like that. So like, hmm, problems, you know? (laughs) So I think that as like a kind of a deeper way of how identity gets consolidated or legitimated in the body, like the way it feels, there was something about that that I really wanted on the page. And one of the ways that I tried to do that, this is another craft moment, in these sentences, there really shouldn't be commas where there are commas. There should be other more forceful punctuation, like like colons and M dashes and periods in some cases. And I was very relentlessly like stubborn and dying on my hill. Like these all have to be commas. And the reason is because a comma is such a like like a milk toast punctuation mark. It's like a workhorse, you know? You can just put it anywhere. But I really want <laughs> You know, it doesn't make much of a statement. It doesn't declare much about it, about itself. And like, I really wanted you to feel in this, in the sentences that you were, that, that this character was thinking. These were not thoughts yet. Like you're thinking. Yeah. And so to get that kind of rolling momentum where it's not really discerning into a, it's like not a hierarchy of thought or importance yet, commas. And like as a counterexample with Angel, the first novel, that bitch should have so many commas and there are none. And that was also a deliberate choice because in that way, I felt like commas were this kind of gesture of trust that the writer extends to the reader. They're like, hey, are you good with this clause so far? Are you ready to keep going into the next part of the sentence? And I just did not want that feeling for the reader in Angel. I wanted people to feel like like they were in a truck with no brakes barreling down a hill. That is definitely the feeling. Because <laughs> <laughs> I wanted him to sound like the internet. Yeah. And the internet doesn't use commas. Yeah. So well, lots of commas in this one, though. I'd like to spend the lion's share of the rest of the interview with the actual substance of the book, art making and capitalism, whiteness, mixed race identity, selfhood in relationship to the collective, and also the uncomfortable places you sort of lure us into with regards to all of them. So as a first step toward stepping into the debased um, labyrinth of your, your love is not good, um, 
here's a here's a brilliant question for you from Matilda Bernstein Sycamore. Oh yay! She told me she was gonna do this. I'm she told you. Well, we've been emailing a lot. <laughs> She's not supposed to tell you. She didn't tell me the question though. Okay. She just said she recorded a, 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 a secret. long rambling one for me. Here you go. Hi, Johanna. It's Matilda Bernstein Sycamore. Okay, I have kind of a long, complicated question, but I know Yay. this is the place for long, complicated questions. So, one thing you do so well in this book is to show the corruption of the art world as a system of extraction. And it goes beyond the commoditization of creativity and into the everyday interactions in artists' lives. So it's not just a structural critique, but an intimate one. I mean, a critique of intimacy itself as a method of control. So there's this enmeshment, right? So that even when there's a righteous critique of the art world for its structural racism, for example, when the critique becomes part of the art world, it becomes part of this process of extraction. And I think that often as writers and artists of all types, there's a tendency to think of the creative impulse as a refuge from this commoditization. Maybe it's something pure, or maybe it's something impure, but in any case, separate. I mean, when we think of art as a means of survival. But in your book, there's no separation, because even the creative impulse is intertwined with childhood trauma. In this case, the trauma of growing up with an abusive artist mother. And so art can never quite be that refuge. And I think you're asking such important questions about survival or art as a means for survival. What if survival itself is implicated in this enmeshment? What if there's no way out? Now, I'm not asking you to answer this question because asking it and maybe leaving it unanswered or unanswerable is so central to the book. So instead, I want to circle back and ask about your process. In a sense, the method of the book is the process of making art itself. So I wonder if you want to talk about how you entrap the characters and the struggles and dreams and desires within this process in order to reveal the larger structures that entrap them, but also the ways that even the methods of survival potentially become corrupt. Mm. Oh, I love this. I mean, Matilda Bernstein Sycamore is just a goddamn deity walking around for us right now. Don't you feel that way? <laughs> I do. I adore her. I adore her work. I think that this is the big ick right now, right? It's like how... Are we supposed to do this? Like, how are we supposed to have any kind of ethics, right? I mean, it's become a meme. There's no ethical consumption under capitalism. Let me say it like this. Something I've been saying a lot lately, because it'll be in the next the book of essays, is that I think the genius thing that capitalism has done, you know, evil genius, is that it's managed to make us believe there's a difference between our needs and our desires, but it makes us pay for both. 
And so the choice, right, to pay for rent or food or shelter or healthcare versus buying a fancy candle or going to Starbucks or whatever, right? A need versus a desire. Under capitalism, this becomes an index of our own individual moral failure. But capitalism is making us pay for both. Like we have to pay for all of our needs and all of our desires. And so we're the ones that then have to decide what's the ethical choice. What are you supposed to do under a system like that? I mean, I'm definitely like, 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 like that's correct what Matilda is saying, that this even just survival tactics at this point do so much harm to various things, like to various other people. And it's the kind of thing where you have all of these justifications that you tell yourself, you know, like, for example, like I was a vegetarian for 10 years for ethical reasons, right? And then I got sick. And now I have to eat meat for my, you know, immune problems. And literally every time I eat meat, I'm like thinking about, oh, God, like, you know, like I have the I have the ethical ick. But then I still eat it. Does my pause, does my ethical ick, my moment where I'm conflicted, do anything? And I think this is the question that all of us are asking. Well, hopefully all of us, but, but it's kind of a catch-22. It's just a paradoxical conundrum. I mean, what are you supposed to do in terms of acting, right? Like, how do you act? And so I feel like to kind of get at the craft or like, you know, what was the process is like one of the things that I learned while writing this novel, because it's just full of these difficult political ethical questions, like what should one do, right? Like how should one act? One of the things that kind of became clear for me writing it is like, while I was writing it, I also had a day job. And my day job was in, was working with a nonprofit. I was part of like the nonprofit industrial complex. I really was, believe, I believed in what we were doing, social justice, community organizing. I ran a fellowship program that like gave, you know, money to like people who really never got money and needed it, you know, da, da, da. And there were so many instances in working that job. I did it for eight years where I would ask in frustration, like, why doesn't someone join the cause? Why doesn't a donor give us, why don't we get this grant? Why didn't somebody join the boycott? Why didn't they sign the petition? Da, 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 da. And I realized at some point that when I was asking this question, why, I never really wanted an answer though. I was just pissed. I was furious, frustrated. I was just like, ah. And then in writing this novel, I was asking that question and kind of interested in what answers could happen. Like, why wouldn't someone join a boycott when they should? Like, that's the problem with the narrator. She should totally join this boycott, but she doesn't. So why not, you know? And then all of the characters, all of them have some kind of political complacency that they justify to themselves as to why they don't. And so I think that that's sort of this thing around fiction being the glove. It's like the reach and the fist as much as it is also the glove. That it felt better. Nah, it didn't feel better per se. But it there felt like there was more space to think these questions through in fiction than there was at the time in my real life. I like how Matilda's question presupposes that the question isn't entirely answerable or that the book answers it in a way that a conversation can't answer it. 
Mm. Um, but either way, I think her question really gets at how it, it's impossible to disentangle the person, the interpersonal and the subjective and affective from the structural, the institutional and the political. If we look at our main character's relationship to her mixed race, white passing identity, depending upon context, she has various contradicting feelings about it. Speaking of her white mother, she says she despises her and is her and goes on to talk about how instead of receiving the hair of her Korean father, she receives her mother's hair, which she characterizes as a family curse. And yet she wears her mother's clothes and both her and her mother are united in their self-hating. On the one hand, she has created a chosen family of close friends and artists who are largely people of color. And she sometimes envies those like her black best friend who are legible phenotypically racially, whose phenotype matches who they quote unquote are. Even as she is aware that her friend's life isn't one to envy from a racial perspective. On the one hand, she realizes in art school that while she wants to be taken seriously for her skill as a painter, not for her identity, she soon realizes that fighting against the art world, as it is, would cause more problems than cashing in on how it is. That getting her foot in the door was the battle to fight. She didn't have the luxury to choose which door. And yet on the other hand, she's ultimately aiming to be loved in a universal way, she aims for this ahistorical space of universality that's normally reserved for white artists. And she centers as her subject a white woman who is her doppelganger and essentially aims to make it big on the terms that she encounters. Before we talk about what that means, I wanted to spend a moment with the notion of universality in relation to both race and identity. In your last book, Minerva, you say you don't like the word space, which suggests empty, neutral, and ahistoric. You prefer the word place. But I would say your main character seems to be reaching for space. Um, when you're writing Sick Woman Theory, you were mentoring with Fred Moten at the time and went on to write another essay called In Defense of D-Persons, where you say, if I'm going to wander around personhood, I've got to reckon with universality because universality is the foundation for how we construct quote-unquote persons. It's the bedrock beneath the patches of soil upon which all of us stand. Sarah Ahmed explains it. The universal is a structure, not an event. It is how those who are assembled are assembled. It is how an assembly becomes a universe. The universal is the promise of inclusion. Universalism is how some of us can enter the room. It is how that entry is narrated as magical, as progress. And you continue in that same essay. How many people, as I write this, have been declared politically, legally, medically, culturally, economically, racially, socially, and gender binarily to be D-persons. 
As a white-passing, a.k.a. white-privileged person, I believe it is my first obligation not to be ahistorical. So I was hoping you could talk more about the throne of universality that your avatar is reaching for in light of this and the problems of reaching for the throne to, as you say, consolidate and stabilize us as subjects or to make us whole as people. Well, I, while I was writing Sick Woman Theory and then when I was writing In Defense of Depersons, the essay that came out after, I was being mentored by Fred Moten in a um, kind of like a para-institutional or non-institutional fellowship program in Los Angeles called At Land's Edge. Um, we just met in the garage of this fabulous um, scholar named Michelle Dazan. And it was very like, what are you working on? Who would you like to mentor you? Let's just see if we can facilitate that conversation. It was very chill. There was no money. It was just kind of like, let's see what, you know, connections can be made in L.A. Um, that was so when Fred was here. You know, we just reached out and asked if he would be interested in doing that. And he was like, sure. And what it amounted to was literally just two long conversations that we had together, him and I, where he just eviscerated sick woman theory <laughs> and told me why what I had done in that first piece was create another cruel optimism of the sick woman as a universal figure. Did you say cruel op optimism? Yeah, this is a Lauren Berlant Yes, that's idea. what I thought. Yeah, so he was like, you just made another cruel optimism. Like now people can feel good about being a sick woman, but the question of inclusion and exclusion uh, into that category still stands. Which is absolutely correct, which is why I feel like I spent the years after Sick Woman Theory revising it and kind of unmanifesting its manifesto tendencies. But this was something that was really revealed to me also just in general was like the point, I think, of a manifesto is to lay bare why it cannot be manifested, right? Like that's the point. It is an impossibility. And so why is the question, right? There is something in there, though, about I feel like during these years of writing this book, I was kind of having to come to terms and really cathartically speaking, like Aristotelian purge, pity and fear catharsis of coming to terms with how badly, you know, I wanted to be part of the universal and whatever that meant, like how I wanted to be legitimated by certain institutions racial ones, gender ones, capitalist ones, you know, economic ones, whatever it was. And like, why? 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 Some of it is, yeah, it's like just sort of in the air we breathe and the water we drink and it's just sort of internalized from all of these ideologies that construct our world. And then also sometimes it is a choice, right? Here's again this dilemma of the interior intention and the choice that we make and then how that is determined in the external world. So, you know, just like in a basic way, like the first thing I kind of had to deal with was whiteness. <laughs> because, you know, in my in my case, like my sibling, for example, is not white passing. And so we had like a really different upbringing, a really different experience just in our bodies. There is something also I have to say that for me, like the political like in an Arendtian way, like the political. It becomes political when you feel it in your body, I think. Just whatever it is. 
I don't think it can really, like an abstract political concept can really have political impact unless you feel it in your body. I don't know really exactly what I mean by that, but it feels right, you know, like it, like there's like an intuitive, yes, that's right. And so one of the things, you know, that I wanted to use the prophylactic of fiction to kind of get into was how icky and bad whiteness made me feel. And, you know, like I just wrote this piece for my, my friend Jessica Crispin just started a sub stack called The Culture We Deserve. And she asked me to write about movies. And so the first piece I wrote was about the Oscars. And I thought quite a lot about whiteness in this year's Oscars. And I realized, like, I think the phrase white innocence is redundant. Like, I don't know what other kind of innocence there is. White Innocence and White Guild is sort of the entire project of the Oscars. Um, You know, it's like literally a room full of the wealthiest, most powerful white people in the world, like crying about how great they are. And then they're crying about how they didn't let enough non-white people make movies. Oh, you know. (laughs) So there's something in there, though, where I was like, what really is the difference between White Innocence and White Guild materially, like politically? And another way to say that is like, what is changed in the lives of non-white people when white people feel either guilty or oblivious about their own whiteness? That's on my mind a lot with how whiteness works, because I feel like the other thing that was going on around this time of starting to write the novel and then these years of like the 20 teens was really a lot of questions about like what it means to be in solidarity, what it means to be an ally, what it means to support a cause, like how should white people act at the Black Lives Matter protests, like these kinds of things, right? And these are all good questions and things to be worrying about, but I often felt like the discourse was just so, or just some of the conclusions were just so like, unsatisfying because they didn't really get us anywhere they just made white people feel even more coiled into their own condition right and that became the universe you know that then also replicated the universality of the whiteness that was already there I think what also happened within people of color like communities like social justice communities of people of color at least the ones that I've been in is that we kind of started to measure ourselves between how close to whiteness and how far we were from it. Like whiteness and blackness kind of got positioned as this antipodal thing. For better or worse, I mean, some of that is not bad, but it did, it, it just sort of became this kind of phenotypical visual thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, I mean, just sort of armchair pontification, you know, I think that in like, earlier decades, the left, you know, maybe in the 60s and 70s, the solidarity was much more around class um, than identity politic, like identity politic, I'm saying like in scare quotes, you know, like, like, I'm not sure how useful it is to leave class out of these conversations around what we should organize around ourselves around. Um, You know what I mean? We're heading towards money. Soon. Okay. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say we <laughs> can take right money. into money. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, money is such a huge part of this book. But uh, yeah. But before we get there, I want to stay for just another moment with Fred Moten. You mentioned that Moten pointed out to you that the etymological root for privilege 
and private, for privilege and private are the same, from the Latin privis, which means individual. And you, and you say, quote, that an individual can have privilege is also the extent to which such an individual can be private. It's why white people don't know what white supremacy is or that they benefit from it. Whiteness itself is a kind of totalizing assumption toward privacy. And then Fred says, privilege is a radical incapacity for sociality, which I really loved. So in light of that, here's a question for you from Lucy Ives. And, and speaking of sociality, it's coming from the New York subway so it's going to be really hard. it's going to be really hard to hear um, field recording so, so here we go um lucy ives in the new york subway hi there this is lucy ives i'm coming to you from the new york city subway and my question for you is what is the role of friendship in your work please interpret my question as you see fit Oh, I love that too. These are so fun. Thank you, David Naiman. <laughs> I'm just going to have a moment. It's great. So cool. Um, I'm alive because of my friends. I've only ever done work with people that feel like they could be friends for life. I think part of that is being crip. It's a kind of radical inter interdependency that just has to happen. And so, you know, obviously it wasn't just like I've been so blessed with every friendship I've ever had just works out and it's amazing. You know, there was a lot of years in my own just life of becoming disabled and figuring out how that was, you know, to deal with that, you know, meant that a lot of my friendships stopped or ended. But the ones that didn't, you know are still there and they're really 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 profoundly deep and you know that was the other thing is in this novel like I really wanted her to have one relationship that was like really good um, which is her best friend Eve and Eve I have to say is a kind of an homage to my best friend um, who is my queer mentor just a couple little details of him that I wanted to put into the character of Eve like there's like one scene that's like straight from our lives. It's the one where they're in the elevator and they're bitching about something. And there's like a stocky white guy in a baseball hat in the elevator too. And they f go down 12 floors and then we get to the bottom. The guy's like, yo, you guys are assholes. <laughs> they both just laugh. That happened to me and my best friend once. And we were just so pleased, you know, <laughs> it's great. Um, but yeah, friendship, I think, is like there's something to me just so, so I don't even have the right adjectives to, you know, to 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 hold the extent that it's important to my life. Like and it's not just a queer thing. It's not just being like in a, you know, like an open relationship or a care network for disability stuff like it, which, you know, are the things that I'm in. But I think it has just something to do with like. Like life is so fucking hard and, and, and it's only getting harder. Like our bodies are going to deteriorate and be more painful and more expensive. 
until they can't move anymore and then we're gonna die like that's literally the case <laughs> and like one of the <laughs> you know yeah that's real and so there's like kind of only a few things that we got like and one of the few things is each other it's like our friends that's what I mean, too, about trying to get out of this ethical ick, this conundrum of capitalism. It's like these moments that feel purely ins like the strongest insurrectionary potential for me are the ones where I'm like with my friends and we're just like laughing and like drinking wine in a garden or helping each other get groceries or, you know, and, and honestly, this is this is also thorny because it means, right, like, do I have to like you to care about you? socially but like i'm a cancer moon <laughs> uh, you know i've never gotten it means two things it means i've never gotten over anything and number two it means that like i will like die for my friends well okay so thinking of sociality and friendship one of the dramatic tensions of the book is the desire to have one's art accepted which begs the question by whom, and on what terms, but also finding community and being accepted by community. So these are two desires that are throughout this book. And one of the big fulcrums of the book is around, as you've alluded to, a proposed boycott of galleries and museums by a black artist who calls on all artists of color, no matter how much they might individually suffer to stand in solidarity together against the institutions and to withhold their work. And one of the dramas is who will our mixed race narrator stand with? Uh, before we talk about how this is complicated for her, talk to us for a minute about the boycott or the inspirations for the boycott, which you name in the notes at the back, um, some real, disruptive tactics that were happening in the world. Um, talk to us about wanting to employ this in the narrative, this potentially disruptive tactic within your narrative. I mean, one of the things was that like boycotts happen all the time in the art world. They're really like kind of a regular thing. And I had had a kind of a version of mine for, for about three years in, in, in the drafts when I was writing. Um, but mine was a bit more of like a call out, like a, like a cancel call out kind of moment. And then the tear gas biennial happened, which was, you know, the Whitney biennial in 2017, 2018. So now I'm going to forget. And there were several really incredible pieces of writing and kind of mobilization that came out to really demand that the Whitney be held accountable for one of its board of trustees sad like the terminology is weird but he was basically involved in a company that manufactures tear gas and to be fair all of the board of trustees of any fucking museum are you know blood on the hands right, right. but this particular one i think really galvanized a generation because the questions that were being asked by um particularly the writers of the piece called the tear gas biennial hannah black toby Hazlitt, and Ciaran. Finlayson. It was just, you know, one of these things that I think consolidated a lot of our feelings about recent art world shenanigans and chicanery that was going on. 
and the question of like, can art be politically relevant towards social change, like of some kind, right? Like these questions around doing activism in one's art practice at the Whitney or at these institutions or at a museum at all. And I think what those three writers pointed out is like, duh, the answer is no. So why are you there? And and like, because to me, what happened with that biennial and the, and the boycott around it was I was shocked that more people didn't just immediately join it. Like I was nobody. I'm not a commercial artist. I'm not going to ever be in a Whitney biennial. But like as soon as that piece came out, I was like, I'm in, you know, <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I have no stakes. Nobody gives a right. shit if I'm in or not. But like I am in, you know. Um, so maybe I should say that is like my character in the novel who, who calls for the boycott is like the one I agree with the most, you know, like I, like she's my favorite, <laughs> the really angry one. Let me complicate that. Let me ask you okay. about that. Cause so you're saying you agree, you agree with the person who's boycotting in the book more than your narrator, but I want to push on that for a second. Cause one of the ways this boycott is an impossible situation for our main character is that she has a six-figure art school debt and she's gone all in with regards to trying to fake it until she makes it. And what I mean by that is that throughout the book, there are all these meditations, which you've alluded to earlier, about painting and performance or painting and deception with lines like, what something looks like becomes what something seems like becomes what it is which also sort of ends up speaking not just to art making, but to self making and our artist with this six figure debt in this spirit is behaving rich. She's ordering delivery services for food. She's buying like these really ridiculously expensive clothes, getting herself in the room by performing a different self, but it's this huge house of cards if her upcoming exhibition isn't a success to sort of backfill all of these liabilities, disaster potentially looms. So the big question is, will she stand with her fellow POC artists, which she wants to do? Do you identify there is that desire in her, but also then sabotage her shot or choose her chance at whiteness against her heart? on some level, right? I mean, I don't know if I'm characterizing this right, but it is, it, there's a whole bunch of stuff going on in this person. And I know you characterize her as making all the choices you wouldn't make, as making the quote unquote wrong choices. But I wonder if it's that simple because I wonder if you actually in the end empathize with her more than this statement lets on to. Uh, here are some quotes of yours from elsewhere. Um, first from an interview in Autostraddle, quote, maybe the thing that we need to do if we're talking about communities is define what community is. People really love it. They get excited when you start to say us versus them as the way to talk about community because it is clear and simple. So my favorite booyah thing to say is, you know, us versus them is how politics are divined by Carl Schmitt, who was the official philosopher of the Nazi party. The us versus them thing is one of the tenets of carceral logic. 
this person who did a crime cannot be part of us. They have to be part of the them. I think carceral logic creeps into activism all the time. It's this idea that one can do wrong or one can do right. And if you do wrong, then we're going to banish you from the us. And then in your 43-page questionnaire, you describe the book <laughs> you describe the book as it's about people who keep making the wrong choice because there is no other choice but also because they think it's the right choice, which means it's a tragedy. It's about objection, poverty, and ambition, which means it's a coming-of-age story. It has a lot of kink, which means it's a ghost story. There's a massive black cube behind the protagonist's head, which means it's a fairy tale. But this notion of people making the wrong choice because there is no other choice suggests her wrong choices, while different than yours, are also perhaps ones that you understand in some way. Absolutely. Like, I mean, I think that this is one of those moments where I would have to concede that fiction, you know, helps with empathy or whatever. (laughs) 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 But, you know, to kind of go into that a bit more around this thing I was saying earlier about how capitalism is just so fucked up in the way that it makes us do this choice thing between what's a need and a desire and how that becomes our politics, right? Like, are you buying the right brand of laundry soap? Do you use Amazon? Blah, da, da, all of these things. Like, I feel like one of the things that happened with writing the novel is that at some point it was a little slack in terms of dramatic tension. Like, like I was pretty far in, like years into it. And I was like, God, it's just not really propulsive. Like, you don't really like want to turn the page. And then I was like, what could really amp this up and help me out? And I was like, oh, money. Like, oh, money. Like, that'll do it. Because that is what is the dramatic linchpin of all of our lives. Like, in this way that sucks. I, I have another thing to say about this in terms of the us versus them and the like the kind of carceral logic that creeps into community like I'm saying with class, like it's really kind of difficult to ask these questions and include class. Because class kind of, I've noticed just, re, you know, in the last some years, it's the thing that answers why you're doing the bad thing, right? It's like, oh, we can't use Amazon, but it's like, but people are like, but I can't afford not to. And of course, under capitalism, you know, the only possible condition is to be in debt. That's the only possible condition. That is what capitalism is, literally. That's what capital is, you know? And so there's something about how we've kind of managed to make debt. I talk about this and why it's taking so long. It's like, what we should do with the idea of debt as the default is make it about being radically interdependent. Because it is. But instead, we use it as this index of like how we have failed or how we are not solvent or how we are not, right? How we lack whatever. And the other thing that I would say, like, I really want to say this anecdote right now because it's like, I think it speaks to this kind of like thing I'm getting at it about like the harshness of of us versus them as the way that we're building community. And listen, like, like, I should say this first footnote. Community sucks. 
<laughs> like sociality <laughs> sucks. These people, who are they? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like this is the problem that is the horizon of organizing on the left is this is the problem with interdependency as being the demand. And I am like the main person calling for interdependency as the thing. But I'm also like, I want to be alone most of the time. Like, I don't like you. I don't want to hang out. Like, I don't. Uh. So this is like part of the profound limit of trying to build a politic based on a totally inclusive community. And so what I'm going to say next is my like little like anecdote as like, a, maybe this will help was something that happened to me a couple of months ago, which was that somebody took me to a pro wrestling show at the forum in LA. It was a Wednesday sold out crowd, 17,500 people. It started at 5 PM. I'd never been to anything like this. I'm a huge UFC fan. But pro wrestling, like I didn't never, I never got it. I was like, that's the ridiculous kind, right? Like the fake one. And this person convinced me by saying like, no, dude, it's drag. It's like masculinity drag. Drag is femininity drag, but pro wrestling, mask drag. So I was like, oh, okay, I'm down. So we went. And I have to say, I had a vision of political utopia in this <laughs> fucking pro wrestling show because of this one thing that happened. Okay. <laughs> Like, it's really profound. It's in my next book. I've been writing about it for the last few months. I, it's like it changed everything for me. And that was the, the favorite of the night, um, like the, the most famous kind of duo at the moment. They're called the Acclaimed. They're these adorable two gay boys who wear like neon glitter spandex booty shorts. And, and they're really cute, you know, and they come out like it's like it's like everyone that the headlining name, like everyone is just, oh, my God. And the slogan that everyone says for the acclaimed, get into this, is scissor me daddy ass. Okay, so 17,500 people just on their feet. Whole families have made, you know, cardboard scissors with aluminum foil on the blade. And they're like, scissor me daddy ass. Like the people are losing their minds. <laughs> Okay. And I am like, I was sorely mistaken. Like, this is fabulous. <laughs> so they run out. There's like pyrotechnics. Like, you know, like, you know, the MC is like, and welcome to the stage, the acclaim. Everyone's going crazy. And they run out on stage to do a song and dance before they're going to fight. So they start doing their little, you know, their little number. So drag, you know. So fireworks, song, music, everything. And then one of them fucks up the lyrics. And he's like, oh, fuck, wait. Oh, no, sorry. Oh, sorry, sorry. I messed up. We got to start over. And they scamper off the stage. And like the MC resets, the camera resets, and they just start doing it again. And in between that, the entire crowd just kind of out of some place that I didn't know existed still in the human heart, everyone just starts clapping and giggling and laughing and they start chanting, you fucked up, you <laughs> fucked up in the most loving, caring, supportive way. And I like looked around the arena and I was like, can you imagine if somebody said something problematic on Twitter, somebody made a mistake, at work, at school, somebody said the wrong thing. And instead of shaming and punishing them, we just all good naturedly were like, yeah, mistakes happen. You fucked up. Try yeah. it again. It's okay. 
I like really like have been thinking about this. Like what would happen if we just sort of included that part in the community building rather than that you can only do the right thing to be in this community? What if it was more like, what about all the mistakes and the like things you don't yet know? And that that was what built us into some sort of collective. I love that. Well, let me read you alluded to and spoke into the essay why it's taking so long about debt. And I just want to read a couple of those lines because they're, they're really interesting. We framed care within the context of debt where my quote unquote giving care to you means I'm depleting my own stash and your quote unquote taking from me means that now you owe me. And although we've made debt into an index of our deficiency, we've also made it the only possible condition of life under capitalism. To be alive in capitalism is by definition to live in debt. And yet we've defined debt not as a kind of radical interdependency, as the ontological mutuality of being alive together on this planet, or I'll say at a wrestling match, um, (laughs) which it is, but as all that reveals our worst, what happens when we fail, a moral flaw that ought to be temporary and expunged. By doing this, the omnipresence of our need is framed as a kind of weird bankruptcy that happens only to the weak, which is a fucking canard. The logic of capitalism states that the person who needs support from society is a burden on that society. But this logic can only work when the premise holds that our natural state is one of surplus, and it is not. And then in Sick Woman Theory, you say, the most anti-capitalist protest is to care for another and to care for oneself, to take on the historically feminized and therefore invisible practice of nursing, nurturing, caring, to take seriously each other's vulnerability and fragility and precarity, and to support it, honor it, empower it, to protect each other, to enact and practice a community of support, a radical kinship, an interdependent sociality, a politics of care. So weirdly, or maybe not, because we're talking about the impossibility of being alive and caring and being connected under this structure. This this all makes me think of of suicide, oh. which is throughout this book, similar to each chapter having a painting technique as the title. The narrative is regularly interrupted by historical suicide of an artist of some sort, like a drumbeat from Rothko to Diane Arbus and many, many others. So we have a question for you about this from Karen Balin. Hi, Johanna. This is Karen. And this question I have for you comes with some content information as I want to talk with you very directly about suicide as your novel, Your Love is Not Good, shares the stories of the suicides of several artists across its pages in a procession and almost like these stories are the engine or ironically enough, the beating heart of this novel. There are indeed many suicides in the arts, but I think more so art 
and novels are often about either A, finding a reason to live, or B, depending on the speed, the cruciality, the lived experience of the writer, are about the extreme sanity or the rationality of suicide in a world that worlds like this one does. And then sometimes possibly about living with this outstanding feeling, finding the negotiation or the meter in which to keep living. Thomas Bernhard comes to mind and also Octavia Butler or someone coming from that lineage such as Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya. And it is quite worth noting and I think important to say that neither Bernhard or Butler ended their own life and Ajay Brenya is very much alive. Sometimes I wonder about writing about suicide as a kind of, um, like, I don't know, a suicide spray. I used to think, or say anyway, that you can't really write a novel that isn't about either a child or an artist or both. Your love is not good is about both of those things. But now I am also beginning to think there is no novel without somehow this topic of suicide, not really, and your love is not good seems to be surfacing this. So my question for you is, when did this motif of suicides come into the writing of this for you? Why is it important for you to write about suicide in a novel? What does it mean for you to speak so directly and continuously, and I would say thrummingly, about this act? Oh, I love Karen. I loved her new novel. Me too. Um, oh, that one sentence that you pointed out, the omnibus with Anna Isnin and the green shoes, like, yeah. oh. <laughs> like, it's amazing. What an incredible sentence. Like, she, like, made a new world with that sentence. Um, that's a great question. I mean, I have, you know, we content warning this, I guess, because it's about to get real deep. Suicide has been something that's a regular, regular, not even a visitor in my life. It's just a regular character, a regular presence. And that started because of my mother. My mother was regularly threatening to commit suicide. She did try several times when I was a child. The first time I tried to commit suicide, I was nine. And it was a really profound experience because I was nine and that meant that I didn't know what I was doing really. And I couldn't have told you if I, that I made a, a decision. It was more just, it seemed like the inevitability that my life was both profoundly unknowable and the opposite. It was like so known that I couldn't bear. I couldn't bear it. And so it was late one night and I took what I found were like, I thought sleeping pills in the, like powerful enough sleeping pills in the bathroom cabinet of my parents' room. And I took them and they weren't enough to kill me, but I didn't know that. And so I laid down on the couch and I, I've been writing about this, which is why it's so fresh in my memory. 
I remember so specifically starting to fall asleep and feeling like suddenly like, oh, this might be the last, this is the last time that I'm going to ever have this sensation of being conscious. And I remember kind of shocking awake and being terrified and running into the bathroom and looking at my face in the mirror. Um, but I don't remember what I did next. I don't remember like what I felt or decided or didn't decide. I only know that I went back to the couch and went to sleep and then I woke up in the morning. I didn't like make myself throw up. I didn't know how to do that. So either I decided fuck it or like I was like bummed. But I don't know like my you know like like my memory is then just a blank and then I woke up the next morning and I didn't tell anybody and I went to school like nothing happened. Wow. I think what it did though and this is something that I did put in the novel and is what Karen is talking about. Like, like during the writing of this novel, I, I was in the psych ward at some point because of suicidal depression. It was because of my mother. And it took me actually several years out of that experience. That experience was in 2017. And it took until like a couple of years ago for me to realize that it was the last time that I wanted to murder myself. Like in the psych ward, I think I came to terms with deciding that that wasn't going to be for me. And it had been for me my whole life. Like in my mind, I was like, well, I'm not making it past 40 because clearly I'm going to, I, I won't be able to. Like when I turned, the day I turned 20, I cried the whole day. And I remember thinking, if it feels like this already, I'm not going to make it. And then I cried the whole day when I turned 30. And I'm going to turn 40 next year. And so I'm kind of like, what's also funny about this is that in astrology, there's this ancient technique to find out when you're going to die. And it's kind of a hoot because it's, it's like it, they developed it in an ancient world. So it doesn't really take into account modern medicine. But I learned it. The reason I learned it is because the year my mother died, I was looking at the astrology for the year and I had this kind of zap through my body where I was like, oh, someone in my family's going to die just based on what I was looking at with the transits. But it was so scary. And I was like, that's, I'm, I'm being nuts. Like I couldn't know, this is just me overreact, you know, and I just didn't let myself think about it. And I just told myself, like, that's not real. And you're not a good enough astrologer to see that. And you can't even use astrology to see that anyway. You know, it was that sort of argument. And then a few months later, my mother died. And part of the regret and the guilt that kind of swarmed me was if I had been not as afraid to look into this, maybe I could have done something either to help her or something. Mm -hmm. So I learned the technique after that. And of course, the first person I did it on was her. And then I did it on myself. And this is hilarious. So I, in my, it's a long calculation. It takes a lot of math to do. It's not like easy. It's not like, like death in a chart is not one thing or even three things. It's a lot of things that I'll have to converge at the right at the same time. So I did it for me and I, <laughs> and I got that I'm going to die when I'm 40 and a half. And I was like, fuck. That's and soon. then I was like, but I fucking knew it. See, I had the vibe the whole time, right? Yeah. So I called my friend who's an astrologer and I was really like, I was like bummed. I was like having a moment. And my friend is like, hang on, bitch. Let me check your math. Like, just wait a minute. And 12 hours later, 
they left me a voicemail and they were like, I have you living to be 93.8. It's <laughs> <laughs> a big difference. Such a big difference. So I just decided that's the true one, right? Like that hilarious um, William James quote that my first act of free will is going to be to believe in free will. But to kind of go into like how the novel was like part of my own relationship with suicide was that, you know, for, yeah, my whole life, I just thought that was what was going to happen to me. I can laugh about it now and it's kind of funny and like it wasn't tragic either. Like, and I think that's what I'm trying to say with this first experience when I was nine is it wasn't grand. It wasn't tragic. I just woke up the next morning and went to school. And I think that there was something about that that just put it really close to me. There's a line in the novel about how like when life feels the most like life is this lacuna of it being really close to death. And for me, that's been true. And, and what's also true, I should say, about my mother dying in this process is that I have a much better relationship with her now that she's in, she's in the ancestors than when she was alive and I've done a lot of you know like I have a shaman like my Korean shaman and I for years you know we're kind of like doing a lot of stuff to kind of for me to make peace with her that could not have happened while she was alive and so that's the other thing I think about being raised in a in a witchy family and kind of believing in this sort of thing as as a possibility is like suicide was never like I mean obviously it well I you know I've I'm mentally ill, you know, I'm clinically psychotic. Like it obviously was a thing that was an option in the most desperate moments. But it is this thing that Karen is saying. There is an extreme rationality to it also when you're in there. I think Donald Antrim's new book really gets at this. What's it called? One Friday in April. It's a very slim memoir of his time being suicidal and then being in a psych ward with depression. And he talks about it as just like this sort of terminus in a very logical way to an illness like you feel sick and this is the cure and there's also something i guess in there for me about like camus main philosophical thing i like really agree with that as like this is the question always and so not to like wrap it up in a nice bow but a couple of years ago i realized like oh right i'm not gonna die by suicide but I do think there is an interesting thing around artists self-destructing. And that was the thing that started to happen in the book where I put, I think the first one I put in there was the Rothko. And the Rothko line was in it from the beginning. And I remember at some point my agent was like, we had to make a lot of cuts. And she was like, I guess we should cut this because it doesn't really, it's just one moment. And rather than cut it, I was like, actually, I think we should really expand it. And so then I, you know, went through the Wikipedia list of artist suicides. But the other thing about it is I think there is this image of the romantic self-destructing artist that I kind of wanted to play with a little bit, you know. Well, let's let's hear a short reading, just a one-page chapter um, called Pieta that comes very early in the beginning. Pieta, a representation of the Holy Mother with the dead Christ across her knees. Her voice hissed through my sleep one morning, and I opened my eyes to see her face, huge and an inch from mine. The sky behind her was pale, dawn. It was summer. I didn't have school, or perhaps this was before I was in school. Quick, come on, 
my mother whispered. Get up. Hurry. She pulled back the blankets and pulled my arms toward her, putting them around her neck like jewelry. Her eyes were round, black marbles, and she smelled strange, sharp, like burning plastic. We fumbled for my clothes. I said something. She hushed me. Finger to her lips. Then she called me darling and kissed my mouth. She never kissed me, never called me darling. She tasted of tin foil, and my lips stung, then went numb. She brought her dog, Nix, a large silver and black German shepherd. The three of us rode for several hours in my mother's car, a 1974 Pinto station wagon the color of mustard, which she had named Auntie Gethsemane the Gold. My mother's name was, is, Marina. Marina smoked chains of cigarettes and sometimes sang along to blasts of radio. Then she'd flick the volume knob and we'd ride in silence. She'd laugh or shout, and when I asked her what she meant, she shushed me by flapping her hand in my face. We reached a beach far from Los Angeles. It was still morning. A layer of fog has softened the scene in my memory. I remember watching Marina and Nix walk ahead of me down the gray coast. Marina started to blend in, her blue vanishing, Nix a smudge of black. I sat in the sand. They came back when the sun had burned away the haze. For the afternoon, I watched Marina build a figure in the sand, piling handfuls to form a body. It became the body of a woman trying to claw out of the earth. Marina laid strings of slimy, brown-green kelp across the head for hair and stuck gnarled pieces of driftwood into the lumps that were the hands, making hooked fingers that twisted upward. Nix and I were hot under the sun. There was no shade. The sound of the waves unmitigated, crashing, all there was. No one spoke, but I remember Marina saying a few things under her breath now lost. The sun began to set. The sky was fiery pink, and Marina's eyes went back to clear. We drove home and I fell asleep in the car. She pried me from my comfort and carried me into the dark house. As she put me to bed, she said, you did good work today. You're going to be a great artist. Now, I pay my dominatrix to whip me as she taunts me with this. Are you going to be a great artist? I come best and hardest when she laughs at me for saying yes. We've been listening to Johanna Hedva read from their latest novel, Your Love is Not Good. So I want to talk about the ways this book engages with abjection, humiliation, submission, both as a kink and also in a diminishing way, um, the grotesque body horror and, and, and one possible reading of this book being as a horror book. Yes, definitely. Oh, good. I, that was, I was wondering what you're going to think of my theory. Oh, absolutely. A, a horror book meant to put us in a wide range, I think, of both physically and morally squeamish positions, especially when you yourself have said, quote, in tragic times, I find horror 
to be the most agile, imaginative, and relevant genre for elucidating the current troubles. This is probably because horror is the contemporary incarnation of tragedy. But before we do, or as a first step towards doing so, I, I have to say that even more than things like the intractable vaginal yeast infection that our protagonist has <laughs> and the oral sex related to it and the various ad hoc interventions she attempts to address it and is defeated in the face of, I actually found the most squeamish part of the book to be money and mm. noticing that as I read. So, I mean, this mm. might say more about me, who knows, but money and questions of it are ubiquitous in this book. And part of this is that the book opens in an art school where students are incredibly rich with trust funds or large inheritances who are in classes with people who are taking out mortgages on their future with massive student debt. And there's a lot of envy and there's a lot of projection and performance going on. Um, part of it was noticing my own responses when this protagonist who is suffering under six figures of debt is buying all these extravagant dresses and wasting money in like every possible way as part of like her uh, cosplaying being a rich artist in the hopes of ultimately being a rich artist. But mainly I wonder if it's simply really the taboo of speaking about it at all. Mm. Because it seems like in, in normative culture, you either don't bring it up or you bring it up in sort of a sanctioned aspirational way, like tips on how to build your platform is like a totally normal way to bring up something in this regard. Um, but I remember back to when I was talking to Brian Blanchfield about his book Proxies many years ago and how he mentions in, in detail in the book, if I remember correctly, his adjunct teaching salary and his expenses and debts in relation to the expectations on him day to day as a teacher and how commented upon this was it it felt electric and forbidden um it feels like this is on almost every page of your novel these details uh, in light of the way the details are portrayed the kissing up to patrons and to the gallery owners the performance of wealth all of it seemed profoundly obscene to me and the hardest part <laughs> of the book to read, of anything in the book. Wow, uh, David. And I wondered how that felt to you. Mm. I guess for me to connect body horror and the shame that's in this book to also mm. poverty and privilege mm. in the book. Maybe I can just sum all this up by saying, you know, I'm born on the same day as Marx. It's just on my mind. He's like, a Taurus too? Just, yeah. Oh, bitch, that hair. <laughs> The materialist, like the whole vibe, very. Right. That's Marx, Taurus, okay. Taurus, Taurus, Taurus. Capitalist means of production. Come on. Um, I'm also born on the same day as Kierkegaard, who also had great hair. That's so funny. That's really interesting to me. I kind of, I mean, yeah, I do think it says something about you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it has to. 
Well, yeah, let me kind of get at it from like another approach was that I really wanted to write about beauty. And very quickly that meant I had to write about money and wealth because art has just, you know, just forever been tied up with, with wealth. And it's kind of naive to think, I think, that it that there's like some way that that wouldn't happen. And I say that as a person who suffered under this naivete for many, many years. Like I was very like, you know, I don't need money to do that. I don't want any kind of, I mean, I literally did used to call myself the anti-object artist, which is what the character Iris Wells in my novel calls herself. Or that's her kind of position against capitalism in the commercial art world is she doesn't want to make any objects that could be sold. And that was my position for quite a long time. And I remember, I will tell this story. It's like, it's it, talk about squeamish. I had it in my artist statement for several years um, that I would not, my art practice would never produce an object that could be bought or sold. Mm. And then I was at an artist residency right out of grad school. I have six figures of student debt. And there was an open studio day at the residency that I didn't know was going to happen. Like when, you know, I went up there. And I had been making these kind of weird drawings for the backdrop of a performance I was going to do in a few months from then. And so I just had them around. And this was in the Bay Area. And there was somebody who came into the studio and wanted to buy one. Uh-oh. And I literally had like $20 to my name. Like I couldn't even afford food when I was up there. I would just go to the kitchen where they, I would eat leftovers. Um, you know, other people's leftovers. Like it late at night so I could eat. And my partner was there when this happened because this like person wanted to buy one of the drawings for $400. This was like, yeah, about 10 years ago. Mm. And my partner was like, but literally you have a piece of paper taped to the front door of this building that's like of your studio that says you're not going to sell anything. What are you going to do? You know, and it's like, this is like one of those moments, like it goes in the movie of, you know, like of my life where all of the dramatic music swells, where I went and I took the sign down and I sold the drawing for $450. Well, my disgust wasn't coming from a naivete, (laughs) but I think what it is, is you're naming all of the things repeatedly, all of the transactions and all of the hierarchies keep getting foregrounded and made visible, which shows something I think that is inherently obscene. The, the, yeah. system, the system itself looks beautiful when you look at That's it. You right. go, to, go to some gallery, go to some museum, but you never allow us, to, I don't think you allow us very much in this book to experience beauty and it, independent of you know, the, modes of, the modes of production. <laughs> around it well right i mean but for better or worse you know i think i'm still mm, struggling under kant you know which is like like we all are which is like you know that the way you know about beauty is by what what you find disgusting like that revulsion and disgust is actually much more important to understanding beauty than beauty Mm. but i wanted to say one other thing about this money thing i think asian american culture like the kind that i grew up with with my grandmother we talked about money all the goddamn time. Like that was it. That was all we talked about, in fact. And that was the only way of measuring 
life being good was do you have enough money are you working hard like oh no I don't so uh oh you know and that was a very kind of very present thing in my Asian side of the family but not in the white side and the white side was also very working class so money was a concern and it was a pressure and a stress but it was never talked about and I think any other Asian American you know immigrant first generation second generation i'm second generation would understand this it's a it's a very heavy climate and atmosphere in the house is the talking about money being jealous of other people like being outright jealous of other people for having money and there has always been something to me about that kind of duality that does like there really is like a kink for me about it one of my favorite ways honestly to dom people because i used to do that from i was a phone sex dominatrix for some time and I love the financial domination. Like, I'm very good at degrading people about that because obviously <laughs> I know about it very intimately. I know how it feels. And so, yeah, there is something about money and, and yeah, what you're saying, the obscenity, the squeamishness, the abjection. Well, let me ask you about horror more in, in the way that we think of horror, not my reaction, not my reaction to money but yours would be a great horror movie don't you think like a horror movie about just like money poverty shame and like yeah. oh i don't my card got declined and you know these things <laughs> but this that's <laughs> in this book for sure to some to some degree i think but thinking about horror and transgression and abjection and thinking about the title of your book your love is not good the book is bookended by dog anecdotes but the one at the beginning where the mother has a beloved dog but one who can no longer move or even roll over, a dog that most people would put down. She somehow keeps this dog alive for years, full of sores, sort of decaying in place in the living room. That love is not good. <laughs> um, <laughs> or at least that seems to me like one great instance of love that is not good. Uh, and we haven't talked about the sex in the book, but the stakes are not just high in the art world, but also in the bed. And there is a really hard to read scene where she brings back a younger version of herself, a fan, a sort, another sort of twin, and tries to be dominant when she's usually submissive. And it goes really sideways in a haunting way, a way that haunts her afterwards. I wanted to read a couple of things outside the book that you said and hear what you think more about how would you would position this book in relationship to the horror genre. At culture.org, you said, speaking of your astrological chart, I have Uranus and the South Node smack on my rising in Sagittarius. For non-astrology people, this means the anus of the universe is sitting right on the place where I'm supposed to appear in the world. And the boiling need to transgress and rebel is against my very self. It means that I abandon my work into the world. It means that my persona, my public self, is already a ghost. It means, quote-unquote, I is multiplied, fractured, and grown through how it is expressed. It's why I've had so many names. What's on the other side of my face is a stranger. 
the holy fire to me is about annihilation, surrendering to it. And then at Art Review, you say, there's always an overabundance with the Gothic in terms of emotion. It's too much, too dramatic, too extreme. And I love that. It's a refusal to just chill out and get over it. The Gothic is devoted to the specters and secrets of society that we've tried to repress. Ghosts, haunted houses, the weird, the horrifying. There was always something for me in being a goth that had to do with my being an outsider to whiteness and normativity as a Korean-American queer person, as a disabled person. So I wonder, thinking about the anus of the universe squatting on you, <laughs> the way Ann Carson is squatting on one of your books, <laughs> how, 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 would you, how would you, and in what way would you position your love is not good in conversation with horror or gothic horror? I mean, it's just my blatant attempt to try to do that genre. I mean, the other thing that I can say for the astrologically fluent is I have three, all of the malefics in Scorpio in the 12th, and they're all retrograde, Mars, Saturn, and Pluto. So I'm real kinky, like kink, like murder erotic, you know, like I can, <laughs> <laughs> that's, the, that's the vibe. All right. So it's like high goth, you know, kind of old Hollywood Norma Desmond <gasps> kind of thing. And then it's like, just the muck, the chthonic, the, the aphotic zone, which is like the bottom place in the lake where all the mud is turning into the, you know, like it's like not water and not earth. That's sort of where I live. And I should maybe also say this thing about the mother um, character having the dog that she keeps alive for years is that actually is real. That is what my mother did to her dog. Mm. And it's the define like as much as my aunt being Liza Minnelli's manager in the 80s, is a defining thing about my life that is the most defining that my mother kept her paralyzed dog alive for four years like on the floor in the house and i think when you just grow up in a house like that with the way it smelled you know with the way that that feeling that kind of murky icky feeling just permeated everything you know we would open the door just like a crack if someone knocked on the thing you know because we didn't like you couldn't have people see that it was very I mean that's like I kind of can't think of a more horrifying symbol and and I could not put it in nonfiction. no one would believe me it would be way too melodramatic and exaggerated so I put it in here there's something about the gothic like I mean I like what I say in that quote I still feel very strongly about Although I was joking lately that I'm starting to make enough money to trans to transfer from being a teenage goth to an adult goth, which takes a lot of money, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta, you gotta, like, because you can see adults walking around that are still the teen in teenage goth, you know, clothes. Like it's a lot of like cheap, you know, it's like grommets and polyester um and like kind of buckles in weird places and like to make the transition into the adult goth you need like you know asymmetry and leather good leather you know rick owens this kind of thing but there is something about the gothic that it, you know you don't have to just wear all black it is a sensibility i mean i always refer like the book that kind of changed my life in the last five years was um by leela taylor it's called darkly i'm gonna forget the subtitle blackness in the american gothic soul i think 
And she's writing from two perspectives. One is like kind of memoir of being like the one black kid at the Bauhaus concert. And normally Gothic, the Gothic as a sensibility, we really associate with a certain kind of whiteness, like, you know, England, Victorian, foggy forests, like women in white nightgowns kind of thing. But she kind of does this other approach where she's like, no, like blackness, especially in America, is where the Gothic horror would reside, like in the South, you know, like Southern Gothic kind of plantation ghost stories, like all of that. And then also just like a black kid at the Bauhaus concert, like what could be more goth? So this book really changed my life when I read it, when it came out some years ago. I mean, I think the other thing is I just sort of, um, it's just sort of my vibe, you know, like pus, blood, yeast infection. Like what's funny about the yeast infection thing is I I remember a couple years ago, Anne Boyer was posting a lot of stuff about how novels never include menstruation, mm-hmm. which is true, like real true, way too true. And I remember writing in a panic to my agent, you know, being like, fuck, I didn't include a menstruation scene in the novel. And she was like, I think the yeast infection covers it. <laughs> I do. Too. I think it's good enough for this book. <laughs> but then the other thing that i should say about that scene you're referencing where she takes home the younger um the kind of the young fan this scene was incredibly important to me it was one of the first scenes i wrote it was like a kind of a like a deciding factor actually in a very big decision i had to make about the book which was that my um my first agent found me And we're still really, really close, but she kind of left the industry. She stopped being an agent at some point before I was finished with the novel. So I had to get a new agent and I had to do the demoralizing query process, you know. And I got down to like two people and, you know, like in the meetings and stuff. And one of them was really cool and we really got along well, but she had a really big problem with that scene. She was like, we're going to lose editors. We're going to lose readers. Like you, you, like, you cannot have a scene like this unless you reframe the entire novel around the character trying to atone for it. Mm. And she specifically said, at the very least, you have to cut the line, I slap the cunt. And I was like, are you kidding? This is like the best line I've ever written. But anyway, <laughs> I... So then the next meeting I had, it was going well. And at the end of the meeting, I was like, hey, can I ask you specifically how you feel about this scene with the character Leah? And that person was like, oh, I loved it. It's so important. It's like one of the great it's like one of the great scenes that really solidifies what's going on in the book. And I was like, oh, you know, I'm so glad to hear you say that. What about the line I slapped the cunt? And she was like, I love that line. It's one of the best lines in the book. And I was like, all right, signing on the dotted line. You know, so she's still my agent and we like, it's the right decision. There was something for me about why it was so important to have. And and the reason why it's so it was so important for me to, to have that scene is we have to see the consequence of her mother. I couldn't spend all of that time in the beginning of the novel doing the childhood trauma and then having this person just like behave fine. And I really was kind of trying to write into this place that I felt was really missing from the Me Too thing of how women can be abusers. Because 
in my life as a queer person, like assigned female at birth, like femme presenting person, the people who have abused me the most have been women, queer women. And that was something that I like really wanted this, this book to, to have, even though it really feels bad, you know, and I can't think of many books that deal with that. I mean, certainly Carmen Maria Machado's in the dream house, like did that. Yes. Um, which I loved by the way, the episode that you do, you two did together about that book. Um, but it was very important to me to have that scene where you finally see her. Like, you know how trauma makes you behave weird? <laughs> you, know, you think and so? You can have, yeah. <laughs> For me, there needed to be something that really upped the stakes about that in a very visceral way and in a way where you saw the sort of consequence, right, of these things that have been done to her that have taught her how to be or conditioned her how to be and how she doesn't yet have the equipment or the vocabulary or whatever it is to choose differently. Yeah. And that's sort of the heartbreak that I always felt when Me Too was happening. Is like you really saw how these men just didn't understand why what they had done was bad. And that wasn't like I'm not trying to excuse them, but that's what patriarchy like teaches you, right? Yeah, there I just felt like that that was something that I really wanted the reader to feel very viscerally like in the body. Like and my and thank God and other stories I my editor was Jeremy Davies and he was like you need to really push the abjection of this scene actually. You need to not give the reader a way out. There was no way out. That was his note. Yeah. yeah that was his note. Well the the book has an epigraph from Liz Spector that goes that horror was that love. And the title of the book comes from the only explicitly, let's say, uncanny or possibly supernatural moment in the book where a witch points at our narrator and says, your love is not good. You talk elsewhere about how witches are always people without institutional power. So this curse coming from the outside of this uber institutional world in this book makes what she says particularly noteworthy, I think. And then at the website for Glut, the, the home of your sound work project, which uses divination and AI, but sort of manifests as a video game, you say, many years ago I went to a witch who guided me through a shamanic trance to find my inner temple and sacred weapons. When I got there, it was a cave of black water on a distant moon, and my weapons were a strand of bowel, a tumor with hair, blood clots, and bits of brain. It's always made me laugh. <laughs> Years later, Amazon recommended my own book to me. These two events are of the most mystically uncanny of my life. I don't think we can talk about the mystical only in terms of transcendence. More often, it's a state of anticlimax, body horror, confusion, doom, and dread. And it is precisely this paradox that makes it mystical. But you also describe yourself on your website as follows. Hedva's practice cooks magic, necromancy, and divination together with mystical states of fury and ecstasy. 
and political states of solidarity and disintegration. They are devoted to deviant forms of knowledge and to doom as a liberatory condition. There is always the body, its radical permeability, dependency, and consociation. But the task is how to eclipse it, how to nebulize it, and how to cope when this inevitably fails. So I was hoping you could talk to us about doom as a liberatory condition and perhaps doom in relation to fate as if a witch were to point at you or at us or at our protagonist and doom us by proclaiming our fate to us. <laughs> I mean, fuck, David. These are the greatest questions. Like, you are great at this. I love it. I mean, and I've just been listening to this podcast forever. You know, how many years? And I'm always like, oh, what an amazing question. And, like, I just listened to it for your voice while you're asking them. And now, like, here I am. I have to be present. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You're doomed. You're doomed to answer doomed. this question, Johanna. Oh, okay. I mean, I feel like I like I, I want to talk about two things, and I hope I don't forget one of them. I'm like, which one should I start with? Let's do the doom one first. But the other one I want to talk about is like fate and, and will. Will you remind me if I forget? I will. Okay. Okay, the doom thing. Yeah. Like I started to really include this in my work some years ago when I was at, a, at the Beer and Metal Festival in LA, um, which is one of my favorite live music experiences. And what's great about it is the band set up like one by one in front of you and then they sound check right before they then play. So it's like, no, you know, it's like the kimono is open so to speak and you just see the whole apparatus and my friend and I who we always go together we always try to guess the genre of metal based on the equipment so they're setting up you know it's like a wall of orange amplifiers and like two bases and we're like doom and then it's like you know a drum set with a double bass and a seven string guitar and a gong we're like death you know it's <laughs> speed death like whatever it is and I remember we were talking about it, like, yeah, like, what is the difference between doom metal and death metal? And the answer is death is fast, death metal is fast, and doom metal is slow. And that felt really profound to me at the time. <laughs> that death is fast, but doom is slow. The other thing I have to say about the doom thing is I just felt better in my own life when I started to just be like, oh, right, we're totally doomed. Like, that's actually the place to start, not end. And this is obviously very political. Like, think of how many communities throughout time have literally met the end of their world, where the apocalypse happened and they are living in the wake of it. And so part of this, when I started to think about rearranging, not just spiritually, but kind of politically rearranging myself to a relationship with doom, had to do with trying to like deal with what was at hand in front of me without the balm of hope. And I got really high and mighty on this for a minute where I was like, do you understand how privileged you are to have to require hope before you can act? Like, you know how many people have not had the luxury of hope and still had to act. They still had to get up every day and deal with un imaginable horrors being done to them and they still survived they still made music like they still cooked like these things right 
The other thing I think around Doom as a starting place has to do with strategy, which is that, you know, I did, I talked about this, like I did activism for many years, like for money, for my living. And I started to notice something, which was that I could understand that what we were doing as activism had a kind of value or was the right thing to do or, or, or was the cause or whatever it was because it failed. Activism always fails, I think. And that's how you know it's activism. This felt also very profound to me when I figured it out, where I was like, right, if it succeeded, then what? Then what would happen? You would just be done <laughs> with racism or what? You know, like, so... I started to really measure how I could, yeah, spiritually and politically be in relationship to like trying for a better world, political dreams, ambitions, hope by the fact that they would always fail. And this lately, like the thing that that morphed into on my mind was about doom and as a strategy, as like a kind of strategic tactical move, which is that, as I mentioned, like I love the UFC. I watch it every week. I love it. And one of the things that I thought about is like, if you get in the ring and you know you're going to lose, you'll fight differently. And I really do think that those of us on the quote unquote left would be better served if we started to address the fact that we are absolutely going to lose. If our opponent is capitalism, girl, we're going to lose. We're going to lose. This opponent is so much bigger than us. It's so much better at, at cannibalizing everything to serve itself. We are absolutely going to lose. Are you kidding me? <laughs> We're going to lose. And so... I wish people could see your face. Oh, my God. I was just like screaming, yelling, big eyes, flailing, gesticulation, spit. Yeah. <laughs> But you know what I'm saying? If we were to get in the ring with capitalism, knowing we were going to lose, we would fight different. We would have a different strategy. And I don't know if it would work, right? Who knows if we would actually win, but it would be maybe not as painful because you, you can watch this with fighters. Like you can watch it in real time when you watch a fight. If someone like knows that person's bigger than them or stronger than them, or has a better left hook, or knock them out already, you know, as an example. It's a different approach. It's a different training camp. It's a different, when they're in there, they do different things. And I just feel like that's sort of where I would hope, uh-oh, I'm hoping, um, <laughs> where I would, you know, want us to start addressing it. Because I think, I think just also, you know, emotionally, activism burnout is so real. And if you are attached to this thing succeeding all the time and then it keeps not succeeding, you're going to give up. And to me, there's a big difference between losing a fight and giving up. Mm. And I'm not saying we should give up. I'm saying we need to fight different. I'm not saying we should give up. I actually think that giving up is like the worst thing you can do. So that's sort of what I mean with doom is like when you start with it at when you start with it rather than have it be the end it just sort of rearranges things in a way that takes away fear and dread and the sort of bottoming out when you're just living for everything to work. 
Also, as a disabled person who's regularly gone up against like my, you know, physical limitation in a terrifying way of just pain and suffering, like, you know, I kind of had to do this without, I didn't really like want to start loving Doom, but, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it kind of just felt better than, than it was like just at some point more practical. And I'm supposed to remind you about fate. Maybe this kind of is a nice, this will go like right back to the beginning and then we'll like scene, um, which has to do with the novel as a form that deals with choice and consequence and the sort of different dis- distance between them. I can say this about fate and will, which is just sort of gleaned from my years of reading astrology for people. I've been reading charts now for over a decade. I mean, I think for money, it's been a decade. And two things happen simultaneously in my mind when I look at somebody's chart. And they happen equally intensely. Like there's not like a priority of like, this one is a little stronger than the other one. It's like they're the same and they are seemingly antipodal. One is that I look at the chart and I just see all of the potential of what could happen. Oh, that person could be an artist. That person could be good good with their hands. That person might have this. That person might have struggled with, you know, that thing. Like, whatever it is. Like, these kinds of contingencies and possibilities and what might have happened. And then equally strongly, I see everything that did happen and will happen. In such a way that this has just been the case for so long that now I don't think these two things are mutually exclusive or opposite. I don't think they're the same, maybe, but they kind of are over, they're superimposed in such a way that maybe they are the same on some, I don't know. Like, I kind of can't explain it and I feel like this is why I'm still interested in doing astrology for people it's also why i'm interested in speculation in the form of fiction or a novel is that there's something about this that like these two things laying over each other like one could say fate determinism something fatalism and then what agency or will will decide about it and what has not been written yet right to me these are like laying over each other in a way that really shimmers And I just sort of started to think about it as like, I think I'm just devoted to that shimmering. And I don't know what that means or how to explain it. It's just sort of that's what it feels like to me when I'm looking at it. And I feel the same way when I'm writing. Well, near the end of the book, as we near the end of our time, our protagonist gets a head injury, a forehead injury, which evokes Athena who herself is born from Zeus's head, motherless. I think of an interview you did at Eflux, where they ask you what the name of your latest album, Black Moon Lilith in the Fourth House, means. And you talk about how Black Moon Lilith is an asteroid that represents the place in your chart where you were most injured by the patriarchy. And therefore, if you can cathart it, you will feel the most emancipation around this place. And when you talk about this place where one is most oppressed, also being the site of possible emancipation, 
I think of how you say in that same interview, astrology is very good at giving language to experiences that contemporary society tends to consolidate under just one meaning. For example, the axis of illness and suffering is also the axis of ritual and care and sanctuary and sleep. There are three houses called the trauma houses, and these are also called the mystic houses. And also, you say, through astrology, I've come to think about all forms of writing as forms of divination. In your talk, How to Tell When You're Gonna Die, Astrology for Writers, you talk about narrative as prophecy, that language creates the world as much as it breaks it, that languages are systems that humans invent to make meaning on the planet, just like astrology is. And you talk also about astrology as a sort of story device, like any other language. So this is my long preface around divination and prophecy to ask about the future for us and for you. You've said America's going to end in 2024. <laughs> and interestingly, I was at... I was just at a Jory Graham reading this last week where she said she was told that it was going to end in 2030. Either way, soon. Um, so why is this so? And what other sorts of liberatory doom can we expect from you before it does end? Yeah, I mean, it's going to end in the way that it's going to keep ending. And, you know, I'm not the only astrologer that's talking about this. It's because America's having its Pluto return. It kind of began in 2020, actually, which is why everything went real well in that year. Um, <laughs> and it, th- this would be an example of what I'm saying of like, you know, it's not like suddenly everyone's just going to disappear or something. It's that a version of America will definitively die for sure. And it will take years, decades. It's a long death. My feeling is that it might feel a little bit like how Greece feels now, where the Parthenon is like, and the Acropolis are like up in the center of the city, and everything else is kind of like difficult, and they're very poor now. You know, it's one of the poorest countries in the EU. But every cab driver you have in Athens is like, Acropolis, isn't it beautiful? (laughs) I feel like America is going to be like that about its grand past. Um, Probably more insufferably than the Greeks, though. Um, well, as I mentioned, as we began, you know, it's supposedly the greatest, best year of my life is next year, and then it just tanks after that. And I can say when I turned 30, I did make a little plan. I had a 10-year goal, which was that I wanted to have four books published by the time I was 40. That was it, actually. <laughs> that was the whole plan. Um, there was like no other, there were no other details. It was just like books, more than one get them into the world somehow. And so now um, that will be true if I can finish the manuscript somehow between now and June 30th for the essay collection, which, you know, is also why I feel a little disoriented at the moment. So that book is supposed to come out in 2024, How to Tell When We Will Die. The next record I'm also working on, I'm really excited about it. I'm confused though. It's like I wrote a bunch of stuff on an acoustic guitar It was a haunted kind of returned guitar. It disappeared for 10 years. Um, It was a guitar I learned how to play on. It was my father's guitar and he found it at like a garage sale for 50 bucks. 
I don't think we've changed the strings in like probably 40 years, actually. Um, and he taught me how to play on it when I was 12. And then at some point, it just disappeared. And we would be like, every couple of years, we'd be like, whatever happened to that thing? We'd be like, I don't know. And then we'd forget about it, whatever. And then last year, it just showed up on the porch and someone had stolen it 10 years ago and we didn't know. And then they returned it unannounced wow. 10 years ago. And so when I was in LA this last winter, it was there. And I was like, oh, hey, I remembered all the songs I had written on it. I mean, dozens and dozens. And then I wrote a bunch of new ones on an acoustic, like a nylon string acoustic. Like, just fuck me. What am I going to do with that? That's sort of maybe where the succubus folk songs that genre will get fleshed out hag blues no waterfall singing over that those nylon strings oh well i'm trying to rough it up for sure i mean you know i can't just be this cannot i mean well the joke i've actually had for this one is that if like way across the street like a football field length away is lucinda williams I'm trying to throw like a ping pong ball that over there and it's certainly not going to land. <laughs> I hope it does. But yeah, if I could just make like my Lucinda Williams record, I would be really pleased. But I think this is like kind of, you know, you're getting the sense, right? It's like I set out on this like funny little task that I'm never going to really reach. And then the failure, like the kind of way that I fail at it is like the interesting part. It was great being with you, Johanna Hedva. Aw, David Neyman. We've been talking today to Johanna Hedva about their latest novel, Your Love Is Not Good, from and other stories you've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Neyman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find out more about Johanna Hedva's work at johannahedva.com. For the bonus audio archive, Hedva contributes a brand new creation made with us in mind. The saddest thing of all is when a lone astronaut falls in her suit, who is there to help her up? A mix of their various vocalizations and text while on tour along with the various voices of the universe itself. The bonus audio archive is only one possible benefit of joining the Between the Covers community as a listener supporter. Every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests, and every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation of things I discovered while preparing for it, things referenced during it, and places to explore once you're done listening. Additionally, there are a variety of other potential gifts and rewards from the bonus audio archive, which includes supplemental readings from today's guest questioners, Matilda Bernstein-Sycamore, Lucy Ives, and Karen Balin, the Ten House Early Readership Subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, 
Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Michelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Me, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. <laughs>